You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it. And it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now, back to our program. Listening to Solace Radio on the Meander Radio Network. For me, back in 1980, beginning back to 1981, 1982, um, in Colorado Springs, that's when the Lord uh, got a hold of my life. I was a Baptist uh, minister. I was helping to build Southern Baptist churches in Colorado Springs and helping to start new fellowships and discipling people. And I was a teacher and and um, the Lord got a hold of my life and said he wanted something more from me. I, I, I was overwhelmed. There were, there were men I didn't even particularly care for, but they would speak and it just the word would just burn through my heart. And I knew God was talking to me. And finally, I yielded and I went to get some counsel from some other brethren. And they said, well, what, what is the Lord saying to you? And I said, I don't know. That's the problem. All I know is I'm, he's calling and I and I have this overwhelming sense of, and the only word that makes sense to me is the word bondservant. That's something that comes from Torah. Did you know the law of the bondservant is the first instruction written and recounted by Moses after the Ten Commandments? We God spoke with his voice for the mountain, the Ten Commandments, and then Moses went up to get all the rest of the instruction. And he came back and he recounted it for us. The first Written instruction that Moses recounted is the law of the bondservant. I didn't really understand what that meant. I did know, though, that men like Paul and Peter and John, when they would write the various writings to the brethren, they would say things like, Paul, a bondservant of Yeshua the Messiah, called an apostle. That Paul put this thing about bondservant even before he put the word apostle. One of the other things I had noted was that the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, is written to his bondservants to show to them the things that are shortly to take place. It's not written just to anybody. And I was overwhelmed with this sense of that I needed to find out what a bondservant was, and that was what God was calling me to. So in the course of the Baptist thing I was involved with, well, I was brought before the entire assembly to be examined. For those of you who are with the Baptists, you know what I'm talking about for the ordination service. And one of the men there asked me that night, Monty, what is the first thing the Lord has told you to do? And I just thought that was the most brilliant, wise statement, question I had ever heard in the entire process. I thought, yes, if one is going to be submitting his life to God, truly submitting, what has God said that he wants me to do? And so I started to answer to, to compliment his question, and that was the first time I've ever had the experience. My mouth opened and words came out and I was listening. And my mouth said to study the prophets. And I was literally inside going, really, Lord? 
you want me to study the prophets? And uh, that year, I began a study of the book of Isaiah. And in the course of that study, it was in 1982, I was studying the book and then teaching. You know, one of the best ways to study a book is to be forced to have to teach it. You know, teachers always learn much more than the students do. And so it was a wonderful exercise for me to to commit myself to do that. So I began with the book of Isaiah. And uh, there's a lot of chapters in Isaiah. You know, if you're going to go one chapter a week, uh, you're going to be in this book a while. So we named the class Isaiah through in 82. And we didn't make it. So we renamed it Isaiah Free in 83. And by the time I got to chapter 58 of the book of Isaiah, my life began to turn upside down, upside down. God told me, he said, in just real clear terms. Matter of fact, turn there just a moment with me. Let me show you what the Lord starts out with, a series of questions. Isaiah 58, verse 1, cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted and thou dost not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and thou dost not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with the wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose? A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for the bowing of one's head like a reed? and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed. Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? That passage of Scripture, the prophet, is basically saying to Israel, yes, you've sought the Lord for just decisions. You are a nation that you claim to have righteousness and have done the will of God and have kept the ordinance of God, but you missed it. You know what really penetrated me? As I was reading through that passage and beginning to think on it, I was saying, hey, yes, this is me. This is me. This is me. Uh Uh-oh. What I'm doing, I'm calling my walk with God acceptable to you, Lord. Only you say it's not. I thought it was. I thought my life being a Baptist minister was acceptable to the Lord. It's what all my teachers had taught me. But yet I'm confronted with the word and and I'm finding that there's some question. Maybe the, maybe it doesn't quite satisfy the Lord. So I said, well, Lord, what's the answer to this? What's, what, what, what's the answer? And then the Lord says in verse 6, is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your flesh? Isn't, you know, my idea of fasting in those days was that I'd leave the food in the cupboard and I'd go fast. The Lord's idea of the fast is you take the food from your cupboard that you aren't going to eat and go minister to someone who's hungry. And you fast because you've served another. Because you've given of you to them. You know why the widow's mites is called the greatest example of giving? You know why? 
You remember the Messiah, he had the disciples take note of the widow giving the two mites. And he said of her, she has given more than all the others. Now, how's that possible? How can two mites be more than all of the silver coins and the gold and so forth that was given by the others? And he gives us a simple answer. He says, all the others gave from their abundance. She gave from her need. She gave her life. She needed those mites and more. And yet she preferred the need of another and said, their need is greater than my need. I will give my life for them. This is the work of the Messiah. This is the work of the Messiah. He gave his own life. And I said, my goodness, you know, I'm a pretty good giver. I've been tithing and all that. But, oh, my goodness, I've been giving out of my abundance. I haven't given my life yet. I haven't. I've gone into no need to minister to another. And then it goes further. It got kind of interesting. He says, there's a promise. Your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily come forth. Your righteousness will go forth before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. That's the kind of relationship I want with God. I want to be able to call upon the name of the Lord and the Lord immediately say, yes, Monty, here I am. He promises this relationship. I had to admit at that time, I didn't have that relationship. Oh, I had, according to the world's standards, I was more than adequately a religious man. But I have a confession to make. When I called upon the Lord, which I didn't do all that often because I didn't want to test it too much, I wasn't sure if he was going to be there. Quite honestly, I had everybody else faked out except the Lord, of course. Then he says, If you will look at verse 10, and if you'll give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. And you will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. And then this is the verse that blew me away. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. Listen to this promise. Then you will take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord said to me, Monty, you were born a Jew. I want you to be a Jew. Let me tell you something. My theology was in deep trouble. In fact, I told the Lord, I said, Lord, If I start acting like a Jew, these Baptists will boot me. And praise God, they did. And I began the small steps of keeping Sabbath in my home. And then I began to say, what other commandments do you have, Lord? And I began to learn the commandments. And I began to go back and try to learn again. All over, all over new. And I made a very interesting discovery that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still here. Furthermore, some other pieces of my life began to take shape. When I was a 20-year-old man, 
a very young man getting involved with the ministry and being discipled. Another man who was taking the responsibility for me to disciple me, he had come to me early on and he'd said, Monty, I'm not in the custom of doing this, but the Lord has told me to do something for you. It's not for right now. It will be later in your life, Monty. I'm going to give you a verse, a set of verses. They are your life verses. Later in your life, God is going to show you what he's been doing with your life. He'll explain it to you. You won't understand it right now, but later there'll be a time when you'll understand and God will be explaining to you what's happening. The verse was from Deuteronomy 8. And the verse basically goes like this. I'm going to give you the power to gain wealth in your hands. Boy, I love that part of the verse. And in fact, up to the time of 1983 and so forth, my testimony, if you were to hear the length of it, truly God did that. I um, am one of those guys who uh, graduated from high school but never got my degree. Rose to the ranks of being a vice president of an engineering company and all my colleagues that worked for me were PhDs. Let me tell you something. You cannot rise in these days to be the vice president of a major aerospace company and have six PhDs working for you unless God has put you there. God turned the favor of men and taught me how to be a leader and how to be the man that I was. He gave me the power in my hands to gain wealth. And my testimony is very clear with regard to that. But the, the, the rest of the verse goes on to say this, so that he might confirm the covenant he has made with your fathers as it is this day. Now, I did not understand that verse back as a young man. I, did, I, I was focusing in on the first part. But when I got to Isaiah 58 and he talked about returning the heritage of Jacob, my father, to me, then I remembered that verse. You mean, God, that you've been preparing me, you've been blessing me so that you could confirm the covenant that you made with my fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? You're going to do you're going to cause me to ride on the heights of the earth and give me my heritage back. I said, I think I'd like that because I was just a Kansas farm boy who had grown up in Kansas with a last name, Judah. And thank God, nobody in Kansas knew that Judah was a Jewish name, so I didn't have a whole lot of trouble. But as I began to explore my heritage and ask God to teach me, one of the things that became very apparent to me in the course of this, that I needed to go back and learn the instruction of my fathers the covenants that God had made with him. And that's when I learned, and I'm sure you're learning this in Torah also, those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not just for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are also for their descendants. And that in the new covenant, we learn that it's not just physical descendancy, it's the children of promise who get these promises. The children of promise get them. And so I said, well, it's pretty clear to me by physical descendancy, I hail from them. It's pretty clear by spiritual heritage as a believer in the new covenant. I certainly have it. It seems to me I'm supposed to have this, whatever this is. And so in the course of studying the book of Isaiah, and if you will turn back with me now to Isaiah 28, the Lord began to open up certain passages of Scripture to me to give me an understanding of them. As I began to inquire 
and ask of the Lord, what are your instructions? What are your commandments? One of the things that the Lord had, of course, put within my heart was a great interest in the second coming. You know, Lord, when are you coming? And this is a very interesting passage here in Isaiah 28 because it talks about those things. And it also talked about the dilemma of where I was at in my life. If you look in Isaiah 28, beginning at verse 9, hold your finger there for a moment. Let me cut to the chase so you know that this is about the end times. If that same chapter, move over to verse 22. The conclusion of this passage I'm about to read is, And now do not carry on as scoffers, lest your fetters be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. We're talking about the end of the age. So this passage is going to be concluding with something to do with the end of the age. All right? So we begin at verse 9 now. And he says, To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order. Order on order, line on line, line on line, little here, little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. You know, one of the things that really disturbed me the most in those days, after I began to be reacquainted to my heritage and to the Torah, to the prophets, to Sabbath, to keeping kosher and so forth, one of the things that hit me was, Lord, Why is it that my ancestors, who are the most religious people in the world, who had the covenants of God, the Torah, and the prophets, who were looking for the Messiah to come, who had the temple and the priestly service, who had all of this history and heritage from the Lord, how is it possible that the Messiah showed up and they blew it? What happened? Well, that's what this passage talks about. They have the instruction of God, order on order, line on line, but they didn't listen. They have it here, but instead they've stumbled backwards. They've been broken, snared, taken captive, captive all the way to the extent they were scattered into all the nations. Why didn't the Torah, why didn't the prophecies work for them? Why didn't they get it? What was the mistake they made? And the thing that really penetrated me about that was if those people in that day with their devotion toward God, if they can make that mistake about the Messiah coming the first time, what is to stop us, this people today, making the same mistake for the Messiah coming the second time? What's our guarantee? What's our assurance that we'll get it right? And by the way, that Isaiah 58 passage said, and I had already confessed, I thought I had been doing the right things, and he told me fundamentally I was not doing anything that was acceptable to the Lord. I had missed it. And I was just barely getting the glimmer of that there's more to this instruction and faith. How in the world are we to be ready for the coming of the Messiah if we're that fouled up about the basics of our faith? And that began to penetrate me. And I asked the Lord, Lord, please, we don't want to make that mistake again. 
Would you help us? Would you help me? I don't want to make that mistake again. Give me the insight. Help me to see, to hear, to understand. And I begged the Lord to do it. And that's when the Lord began to open up certain passages of Scripture to me, specifically this one, Isaiah 28, because what I'm now about to read to you is this is, it's got this word, therefore. If you'll look there, verse 14, therefore, you know, you know, it's an old teaching. If you see the word therefore, you're supposed to go and find out what it's there for. Now, he said, even though they have Torah, they won't quite get it. You've got to have something more. There's got to be something more. And so what the therefore is, now we're getting to the real punchline. Why has, why has he said this? What, what is it that's the real message the prophet wants to say? So he's going to speak to something that's going to be happening at the end of the age that will help us to get ready. All right, you with me now? We're getting ready. We're, this is very important information that's going to help us to be ready. So we need to listen real carefully to what he says. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with the Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed, and I will make justice the measuring line, righteousness the level. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the secret place, and your covenant with death shall be canceled. Your pact with Sheol shall not stand. And when the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. For morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night. And it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. The bed is too short on which to stretch out. The blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon, to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. And now do not carry on as scoffers, lest your fetters be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all of the earth. This is a passage that is describing a particular event, a covenant that Israel shall enter into at the end of the age, that when you see this covenantal agreement that Israel enters into, it will be a precursor to the end of the age, the day of the Lord, the coming of the king. And so there is very precise clues given here for he who will see, he who will listen. Now, what the Lord showed me in 1983 was the following that this covenant is the same covenant that is spoken of by Daniel. You know the verse in Daniel 9.27 about the 70th week of Israel. A seven-year period in the history of Israel in which they will enter into a covenantal agreement, a peace treaty, in which that many characteristics of that treaty are defined for us. In fact, in my study, I have defined 16 discrete prophecies that identify what that covenant will be about and certain things that we will see about it. Now, 
before we go just a little bit further and talk about the history of what we've been watching for the last six years, let me introduce you to another concept that comes from Torah, which really talks about secrets and mysteries, because a lot of this is concealed. This is concealed. And in fact, Daniel specifically says that many things are sealed up until the appointed time and that certain men of understanding will come at the end of the age and give understanding to many. By the way, we'll get into it a little bit later, but there's clear signs as to what those men of understanding are supposed to be able to do. I say that to you because when Moses went back to the children of Israel, God gave him three specific signs to come from the mountain to go into the presence of the children of Israel and say it's time for the exodus. If you recall, he got a staff that could be made into a snake and back into a staff. He could turn water into blood and he could stick his hand in his cloak and it would come out leprous, put it back in and it was clean. Three signs. The Torah teaches us by the evidence of two or three truth is established. And it also gives us in the end time prophecies that certain of these secrets that have to do with the end of the age will come forth, the understanding will come forth by men of understanding and they will be able to do certain signs for you. Let me review the three just real quickly for you. In Daniel chapter 8, there's a vision given to Daniel called the vision of the evenings and mornings. It says that from the time of the abomination of desolation, the sacrifice ceases until the temple is restored. There should be 2,300 evenings and mornings. Daniel doesn't understand the vision. Gabriel comes to explain. But in the course of the explanation, he says in verse 26, chapter 8, Now concerning the vision of the evenings and mornings, Daniel, it is true, but seal it up until the appointed time. And then in Daniel 12, Daniel specifically asks again, what's the outcome of these things? Seal it up, Daniel. Until the appointed time, those who have insight, they will come and give the understanding to many. So one of the signs is those men of understanding have to explain the vision of the evenings and mornings. What is that 2300 evenings and mornings mean? Because it has something to do with the great tribulation and the end of the age and decisive destruction upon the earth. Sign number one. Sign number two. I'm sure you're familiar with this verse. Revelation 13, 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. It is the number of a man, and his number is 666. That prophecy is not primarily about the Antichrist and the number of a name. It's a prophecy about how you identify the men of understanding. They can do this calculation and show it to you. Number three. Revelation 17, 9. Here is the mind that has wisdom. There are seven kings. There's a riddle. There are seven kings. Five were, one is, one will come, but he will only remain for a short time. The beast is the eighth, but he's one of the seven. It's a riddle. They'll solve the riddle. Just like Daniel did to Nebuchadnezzar. What we should be looking for, brethren, is we should be hoping for and looking for the men of understanding who will come at the end of the age and explain what these prophecies are about. What I'm trying to give you a sense of, God has planned it to where that all the understanding is not immediately available. Our brother talked about progressive revelation. I can show you very specifically, the words are there, but the understanding is missing until we get to the end times. And there's a specific way that God says the understanding will come forth. So here we are back again at Isaiah 28. 
I had prayed to the Lord, Lord, help me to understand. I desire to understand. And the Lord had showed me, said, Monty, this is about that covenant that Israel will enter into, that seven-year covenant. This is the verse, this is the passage that says that the leaders of Israel will be scoffers of God when they enter into it. They'll use falsehoods and deception to do this agreement. But the agreement won't cover everything. It'll be like a short blanket, a bed you can't get comfortable with. And it will be a covenant with death. This will harm Israel. It will not help Israel. One of the other things that the Lord showed me is in, with regard to insight coming from Daniel 9, that it would be a covenant made with Israel the 70th week. It's not just any seven years. It has to be seven Hebrew years, seven years of Israel in the life of Israel. That means it has to be years from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah, not just any time of the calendar, seven Hebrew years, because all the other 70-week prophecies all came in that sequence. So that 70th one better match that too. So I said, gee, that's interesting. You mean we're looking for a covenant that Israel will enter into, which will be a seven-year agreement, and it will begin on or about a Rosh Hashanah. And it, the seven years will be seven Hebrew years we're referring to. Then there was something else that the Torah began to show me and teach me. I had made the observation as a new covenant believer going back into and studying Torah that the number 3,000 was one of those Torah clues that gave us a sign. The number 3, 30, 300, 3,000 is always about covenants. Three fathers in established the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant made with our fathers. When Israel was in the wilderness with Moses and Moses brought the covenant down, he brought the tablets down. You remember they sinned. They made the golden calf. He threw down the tablets. And that day, 3,000 sons of Israel were judged who had sacrificed to the golden calf. When the new covenant came, the same day, the same day when the Holy Spirit was given, 3,000 were saved. The Lord said to me, this covenant with death will also have the sign of the 3,000. It's a covenant. And there was other things we began to glean and understand from this passage. So having now set this passage before us, I want you to keep this passage before you. And now let's move to the present tense, because I'm getting ready to show you that something has been happening before our eyes in this world, and we're not getting it. Our brethren are not listening they're not observing. And instead of understanding, we're getting ready to make the same mistake. We're getting ready to stumble, fall backward, and be taken captive because we won't believe. So the charts that I have before you now is going to put you on a little bit of a history tour of things that I know that you're familiar with and that you've been watching right along with me. It's called the Middle East Peace Accord, September 1993. White House lawn, all news networks broke away from the regular broadcasting and began to broadcast this one signal. In fact, I was getting up that morning in my home in Norman. And as I got up, I was taking a shower and I turned the TV on and here's this news broadcast from the White House. And I said, oh, I don't want to watch that. Let's see what else is on TV. So I flipped the channel and it's the same broadcast, only it's the other network. And I said, wow. We've got two networks on the same thing. Flip the channel. 
every channel on the TV had the same broadcast. What's going on at the White House? And I heard the announcer say, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat were at the White House and getting ready to come out with the president to sign some agreement. Man, you talk about shock. This is the first time ever Yasser Arafat had ever been in the United States, let alone the White House. First time. First time Yitzhak Rabin, a leader of Israel, has ever met with the PLO. Ever. For the first time. Ever. And they're getting ready to sign some agreement? What agreement? And they walked out, and you remember the famous handshake. Yitzhak Rabin reluctantly shook his hand. I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, what, what is this? And I said to myself, where's Rosh Hashanah? Oh my goodness, Rosh Hashanah was just the other day. It's at the season of Rosh Hashanah. They're making an agreement with their enemies. What is this agreement? And I'm sitting in my underwear on the edge of my bed, stunned. And I said there, Lord, show me the sign of the 3,000. Where's the sign of the 3,000? Is this it? Is this the agreement? Is this the covenant? that the prophet spoke of. And at that moment, the announcer said, for the first time in the history of the White House, we have exactly 3,000 witnesses to observe this agreement. And by the way, you can go back to the news reports, the encyclopedia, if you wish, about that event, and they report that fact. Now I said, what is this agreement about? What are they agreeing to? What is? How long is this agreement? What is this? Is this agreement about Jerusalem? Because we know Jerusalem is supposed to be the trembling cup at the end of the age. That will be the great controversy of all the nations. Well, they didn't give a whole lot of details, but this is what they did say. The president said that this is a conflict dating back to the days of Isaac and Ishmael. There is no greater conflict in the history of the world than this one. The world press said this is the greatest negotiated peace agreement in the history of the world. The entire international press media called it that. Sounds like a kind of an interesting agreement, don't you think? Maybe we should be paying attention to what this is about. Israel, the leaders of Israel, Shimon Peres specifically. I was very curious, what, what's Israel's motivation here? Because the prophecy talks about their motivation. Here's what Shimon Peres said, why Israel was entering into the agreement. I'm quoting so that the overwhelming scourge of war will pass us by. With the exception of the word war, he quoted Isaiah. The exact words of Isaiah. Arafat, on the other hand, had some different things to say. It's not what he said in English, it's what he said to the Arabs when he went back and spoke in Arabic. Here's what he said. He says, I'm making a temporary peace with Israel like Muhammad did with his enemies. I'm on the mountains. And when they're in the city, and when they relax, I will sweep down from the mountains and destroy all the inhabitants of the city. Ask yourself a fundamental question. Every Arab leader in the history of the world that's ever made peace with Israel or made an agreement with Israel has been assassinated by the Arabs themselves. Why is it that Yasser Arafat's still alive? Because he told them in Arabic, this is my plan to kill them. Now, this is a peace agreement? This is a peace agreement? Jeremiah the prophet said they shall be saying peace, peace, but there will be no peace. And really, this is a peace agreement, P-I-E-C-E, because Jews have been blown to pieces because of this agreement. So in those early days, there in 1993, in the fall of 1993, 
we began to examine the prophecies. There's another interesting prophecy that Paul gives us, 1 Thessalonians 5.3. And while they're saying peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them. Do you know what the official name of the Middle East Peace Agreement is? The Peace and Security Agreement. That's the official name of the agreement. If you download that agreement to read it, that's what you'll see on the title. And everybody calls it the Peace and Security Agreement. Almost immediately, the critics of this agreement within Israel began to cry out and say, this doesn't cover everything. It doesn't deal with Jerusalem or the other key issues. It's, In fact, one press report said, this is a blanket that's too short. And he quoted Isaiah. Nobody can get comfortable with this agreement, just like Isaiah said. What's very interesting also in that passage there in Isaiah 28, verse 14, is that it said that the leaders of Israel that would be making this agreement would be scoffers of God. And when the agreement began in 1994 and 1995, I'm sure you remember this term, they called it the land for peace deal. We're going to trade off some pieces of land and we're going to get peace in exchange. And the logic of the agreement was to build a series of interim agreements. By that, I mean that it's not we're going to make one agreement. We're going to make a whole series of agreements piling up together. And, and the idea was each agreement builds trust and confidence between the parties and that we learn how to be peaceful. Well, of course, it was a kind of a novel concept from politicians, but you, as you can tell, it hasn't worked very well at all. But that was the logic of it. And furthermore, they said Jerusalem is not on the table. We're not negotiating Jerusalem. These are just interim agreements. And in 1994 and 1995, while we were watching and seeing what was, there, there wasn't a lot of details coming forth about the agreement. But finally, in the fall of 1995, we put together what was called the Oslo II Agreement. And in the Oslo II Agreement, for the first time, Israel began to turn over pieces of land in the Sumerian and Judean areas to the Palestinians in various levels of control, area A's and area B's. Uh, area A's total control of the Palestinian area B. It's under the control of the Palestinians, but Israeli security forces are still there and things like that. And there was these chunks of land being offered up. About that time, in September of 1995, there was a very interesting press report that was leaked by the Vatican through La Stampa magazine. The Vatican reported that there was a secret part to the Middle East peace agreement and it had to do with Jerusalem. Now, everybody had been saying Jerusalem is not part of this negotiation. It's not part of this agreement. But suddenly there's this secret purport that Shimon Perez has specifically agreed with the Vatican with Arafat about something about Jerusalem. And anytime you hear about Shimon Perez doing that, which his name means he who divides, you need to take note. Because, oh, by the way, all of the names of the leaders of the, the prime ministers of Israel, they are the prophetic story of what's happening to Israel. Did you know that? That's right. The meaning of all their names. Perez has been the man who's been trying to divide. Remember Yitzhak Shamir? The thorny hedge, he who resists. And boy, did he. Rabin, the many strong ones. And you're going to see something very interesting about his name in a moment. And I'll get through the other names as we go through them. So we have the Oslo II agreement. And what we're being told... What we're being told is that uh, there is some evidence that Jerusalem is to be divided. And they, they also say that the, there's a Golan deal about the Golan Heights. However, Yitzhak Rabin says no to the Golan. No, we will not give back the Golan. 
And almost immediately thereafter, Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated. Now, what was so interesting was that a few weeks before his death, he made the following statements. He was arguing with Jewish authorities, and they were against the Middle East peace deal. And he, they were using the argument of the Scriptures from the Torah. Why? That God gave the land to Abraham and to his descendants, not ours. We, we don't have the authority to give it away. It belongs to God. And as a result, he had made the statement countering these discussions by saying, the Bible is not a deed to the land of Israel. And then he went further. I do not believe in the greater Israel. What is the greater Israel? That's the teaching of Genesis 12 through Genesis 15 when God promised to Abraham the land all the way from the Mediterranean, the river of the Nile, all the way to the Euphrates River, which, by the way, Maybe only in the time of King David have we ever seen when Israel was anywhere near that amount of land. For the most part, we in Israel have seen Israel, that small portion there to the west of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. We just call it the down payment, God's down payment for the greater Israel to come in the kingdom. And so he's saying, I don't believe in the greater Israel. And he scoffed at God. And as a result, there was great shock when people heard that. At the moment that observant Jews were observing Havdalah, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. What Sabbath was it? Lech Lecha, the teaching of the greater Israel. At the moment that God was separating Sabbath from the earth, he separated Yitzhak Rabin from the living over that passage of Scripture. And in Israel... Those who are observant and those who are believers knew God took the king of Israel out because he had spoken against the word of God. No question whatsoever. And then shock began to set in because in Daniel 9.27, it says, and he will confirm or make stronger the covenant with many for one week. The words with many in Hebrew are la rabim. He will confirm the covenant with Rabin for one week. His name is in that prophecy because that's the meaning of his name. The many strong ones, the many leaders. And suddenly the Rabin agreement was now this Middle East peace accord. And all the leaders of the world came to Jerusalem to his funeral in November of 1995. It was a world event. And we watched every world leader get up and stand over his grave and say to Yitzhak Rabin, we will confirm this agreement with you, Rabin, and we now make an agreement with your grave. The pact with the grave. The very words. So we pay close attention to who's at this funeral, who's confirming this agreement. There's a very interesting fellow at this agreement. His name is Prince Charles of Wales. He's standing on the front row confirming the agreement with other leaders. That also is very significant because you see, way back there, back in the early 80s, the Lord had me write a computer program. I wrote a computer program that took the Hebrew gematria, part of the Torah understanding at the sowed level, the mysterious level, where numbers are equal to certain letters. And I applied this system to the English language. Why English? Because it's the common language of the world. And I transferred those values over to the exact same system. And with absolutely no idea as to whose name would equal what, we pulled down from our encyclopedias the names of every world leader in the world. 
and we entered him into this computer program, and one name hit equaling 666. The name is Prince Charles of Wales. Now, I'm Hebrew. I need to see it in Hebrew. His name translated in Hebrew is Nasich Charles Mem Wales, and those Hebrew letters equal 666. His name equals 666 in English and in Hebrew. And what's so interesting about him is in his coat of arms is every biblical symbol given to the Antichrist from every prophet. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In Revelation chapter 13, it says, I saw the beast and he had a body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion. It's a symbol, right? It's a symbolic prophecy. But John said, I saw it. By the way, in Prince Charles' coat of arms, he's for the first time in the history of the monarchy, he has ten heraldic beasts. What heraldic beast am I talking about? It's called the lions or the leopards of England. It's made up of three creatures, the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion. It's called the heraldic beast. It is the symbol for the last 500 years of the monarchs of Great Britain and England. And you know what really gets me about that? Of all the biblical scholars that we have running around in the world, not one Christian scholar has ever made the comparison that that Revelation 13, that verse that describes that beast, that that symbol exists in the world associated with those people there. It doesn't stop there. The scripture also says that the dragon will give him his power, throne, and great authority. The day that Prince Charles of Wales, in July of 1969, received the title Prince Charles of Wales, he was standing in the courtyard of Canaveron Castle in Wales, surrounded by banners of red dragons. He had a throne chair emblazed with a picture of a red dragon on it. And he was on his knees and his mother put the crown upon his head and she said these words, this dragon has given you your power, a throne and great authority. And she quoted that verse. Not one biblical scholar has ever taken note that they spoke Revelation 13 too. It doesn't end there. The prophecies go on and on and on. Let me give you one last one to help identify him. Daniel eleven twenty one. He will be a despicable man on whom the honor of kingship has not yet been conferred. He will seize the kingdom in a time of tranquility through intrigue and influence. I'm quoting from Prince Charles. He was asked once, what can you do? He says, I have no power of my own, but I have influence and you'll have to see what I do with it. I have 22 other quotes from him where he quotes the prophecies. So from a long time ago, we've been watching him real closely. He showed up at Yitzhak Rabin's funeral there to confirm the Rabin agreement with Israel. And Perez became the prime minister of Israel, if you recall, there in late 1995. And in late 1995 and in 96, some strange things began to take place with regard to this assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. If you'll recall, there was a videotape of Yitzhak Rabin being assassinated. It shows this Yogil Amir man sneaking in through the bodyguards, reaching in and shooting Yitzhak Rabin from about a distance of about 24 to 30 inches with the gun. 
Rabin going down, getting back up, getting in the car. They arrest uh, the man right on the spot, and Rabin is driven off. And then sometime later, Rabin shows up at the hospital. He's been mortally wounded, and Rabin dies. Let me tell you some interesting facts about the assassination. The gun that Yagil Amir had will hold nine rounds. It was a nine millimeter. Two shots were fired. Yagil Amir had eight bullets in his gun when it was taken away from him. When the bodyguard, who was standing right, Rabin, when the shots were fired, he yelled out into the crowd to all the other GSS agents, they're blanks, they're blanks. And Yitzhak Rabin's wife, Leah Rabin, was told immediately by the GSS, he's okay, it was a fake attempt, they were blanks. Only when Yitzhak Rabin got to the hospital, he was mortally wounded. And in fact, the autopsy reports that the gun that killed him had been directly up against his person and the powder burns of the gun had burned all the way through his clothing into his flesh and that the second bullet had severed his spine. He should not have been able to get up and walk. And there's eight minutes missing from the time that he got in the car until he showed up at the hospital. The evidence is Yitzhak Rabin was not assassinated by Yagil Amir, but in the car after he left. And the bodyguard who got into the car when he left was dead two days later and secretly buried in Israel. And when Yagil Amir was brought before the court for the first time before the public, he cried out to the reporters and he said, this is not what it looks like. This is a trick. And they said, what do you mean? What do you mean? He says, go talk to his bodyguard. He's dead already. Now, they were talking about it. It was like the Kennedy assassination. We seem to have some plotting and intrigue going on. It turns out Yagil Amir was a trained GSS agent. Interesting. It seems that there was a plot. Actually, what they've now discovered is that France did this earlier. France had a political campaign going on, and there wasn't much public support for it. So the president staged a fake assassination. And as a result, great public empathy and support came to the president. He was able to carry out his political agenda. And the French and the Israelis have always exchanged ideas and weapons and other things. And some people theorize that that's what was really happening here, that the Labor Party was attempting to pull off a fake assassination, only somebody in the government said, why make it fake? And Perez became the prime minister almost immediately. But then something else happened in the uh, Knesset. The leader of the Likud party, Benjamin Netanyahu, stood up in the Knesset shortly after these events, looked right at Shimon Perez in the eye, and he said, Perez, Israel will be ruled by ballots and not by bullets. And all of a sudden, Shimon Perez, who had at least two more years on his term as prime minister, called for early elections. And we had elections in Israel that then came in the springtime of 1996. I was in Israel in those days, just before the election. And while I was there, I was picking up some of the political banners, the bumper stickers and so forth there for the campaign. And it was really interesting because the Likud party was passing out bumper stickers that said, we're for security. Labor was passing out ones. We're for peace. Everybody's going, peace and security. Peace and security. That's all they, literally people in the crowds were shouting at, at each other. And then there was a interesting press report while I was there. It was being leaked to the press that Perez said right after the elections, he was telling the press, I have a surprise announcement for you concerning Jerusalem. 
And everybody's going, what, what, what about Jerusalem? We have a surprise announcement. Wait till after the election. And lo and behold, Perez lost. Benjamin Netanyahu became the prime minister of Israel by the slimmest of votes in modern historical voting time. And suddenly he didn't get to make his announcement. It turned out his announcement was, we've learned later, he was going to make the deal to give the Temple Mount to the Palestinians forever. And he didn't get to do it. I think God had something to do with that. And um, Yasser Arafat got very depressed after that. So in the summer of 1996, Netanyahu is the new prime minister of Israel, and it turns out that he wrote a very interesting memo to the religious community trying to get their support for the election. Here's what he said. If you will vote for me as the prime minister of Israel in the course of me being the prime minister, I will help you get a piece of the Temple Mount back. Wow. By the way, this is very significant. If this really is the Middle East Peace Accord, is the 70th week of Israel, that last seven-year thing that we're looking for, we know somewhere in the midst of, or as a result of this agreement, Israel is supposed to be on the Temple Mount again. There's supposed to be another altar built, and when that altar gets shut down, that's supposed to be the start of the Great Tribulation. That's what's supposed to start the decisive destruction that comes upon the earth. So here's the Prime Minister of Israel pledging to the religious community, I'm going to help you get a piece of the Temple Mount. And he had promised it in writing to them. So as we went through that summer and his government began to be formed, the rabbis and all of the religious community were going to Netanyahu and saying, when, when, when are you going to make the decree? Give us a piece of the Temple Mount. When, when are you going to do it? And in fact, they got very agitated with him and to put a little pressure on him, the rabbis called all of the religious community and said, this was in the summer of 1996. When you hear the shofar sounded on Rosh Hashanah, every Jew go to the Temple Mount and take it. And this got serious. In fact, I had my brethren in Jerusalem calling me up and say, Monty, pray for Jerusalem. We're about to see a bloodbath. This is very dangerous. They are scared to death in the streets of Jerusalem. And so Netanyahu calls the rabbis in. He calms them down. Guys, work with me. It's going to take some time. I'll do my best, but you're going to have to be patient. Work with me. So peace prevails, and the rabbis send the word back out through the Jewish community. Don't go up there on Rosh Hashanah. The only problem was they didn't get the rumor, the turn down of the rumor to the Palestinians. The Palestinians heard the rumor the Jews were going to take the Temple Mount. So after Rosh Hashanah, just before we had about Sukkot, they opened the exit door to the rabbi's tunnel that opens out into the Via Della Rosa over by the Lion's Gate. And when they opened in the Palestine, that's in the Arab quarter. And when the Arabs saw that happening, the Israelis opening that up, they said, the Jews are under the Temple Mount. They're taking the Temple Mount. And we had a riot and 70 people died. The press said, these are apocalyptic numbers. You darn tootin' they are. This is very serious. Very serious business. And it turned out that they were believing that the Jews were going to take the Temple Mount, and that wasn't what was happening. But that's the tension level that was now building. This Middle East Peace Accord is about the Temple Mount now. And the Arabs were saying, when are the Jews going to take it from us? If you recall there in the winter of uh, 97 and leading up to 97, why we had the Hebron negotiations. Netanyahu was trying to put up the interim agreement concerning Hebron and the Families that lived in Hebron at Kiryat Arba, they were expecting Netanyahu and his government to back them and support them and, and not leave and not turn it over, and he did. And now the religious feel that they've been double-crossed by Netanyahu. 
He didn't keep his promise about the Temple Mount, and he didn't support the, the families in Hebron. And as a result, nobody liked Netanyahu. What does Netanyahu's name mean? The gift of our God. And what is this gift that we got? Well, it turns out it was a big delay in the Middle East Peace Accord. Because as we go into Purim of 1997, the fourth blood-red moon on the fourth consecutive Hebrew holiday, they just stalemated all the negotiations. It just came to a standstill. Nothing could be done. Everything was locked up. So from Purim of 1997 into the wintertime of 1998, the negotiations are stalemated. There's a lot of charges and countercharges. Israelis are saying that the Palestinians aren't doing their part. The Palestinians are saying the Jews are not doing their part. They're breaking the agreement and so forth. And finally, toward the summertime there of 98, Netanyahu began to try to move things forward, and he made an interesting suggestion. He said, let's stop with the interim agreements. Let's go right to the final agreement. Boy, was I waiting for that, because we know the final agreement is about Jerusalem, and we're going to find out what this thing is really about. But Arafat doesn't want to do that. Here's the reason why. At every interim agreement, he's getting something from Israel. Why stop that process? Why go to the whole thing when I can chip away at them and I keep getting things I want? So he says, Israel, you're not keeping the agreement. I want the interim agreements. And Netanyahu says, this is not working. Let's get to the final thing. This interim thing is not building peace at all. It's not building confidence at all. And so a whole series of Netanyahu scandals begin. And it's clear that the United States no longer likes Benjamin Netanyahu. Clinton can't stand him, begins to snub him. He's talking to Arafat and bringing him over and all those kinds of things. But he won't even meet with Netanyahu when he comes to the United States for various functions. And in fact, the way it built of all of that kind of building up till in about February of 98, I'm not positive that might have been January, but it's in that early 98 time frame, Clinton finally asked for Netanyahu to come to Washington. And he's going to sit down with Madeleine Albright, and the press reported this. They said, Clinton is going to take Netanyahu to the woodshed. He is going to read him the riot act. He is going to straighten him out. He's going to tell him how the bread gets buttered. What's real interesting was that Netanyahu came into the meeting, and at the very moment that they took their seats there in this meeting, an aide to the president came in to him with an emergency message. The Monica Lewinsky story had just broken. The meeting was adjourned. Benjamin Netanyahu got on a plane and went home and said, it's Mr. Clinton who has to worry about his job, not me. Which was another wonderful example of, you do not mess with the king of Israel and try to take him out. That's the business of God of Israel only. And even if you're the president of the United States, you mess with God's anointed, God is going to mess with you. And as a result, in this country, there is no doubt in any believer's mind, we were watching God judge and embarrass the president of the United States like we have never seen happen before. And in fact, it was leading to impeachment, and he was the second president in the history of the United States to be impeached, and he almost lost his job. He spent the rest of the year holding on to it. Netanyahu had peace back in Israel. Now, as soon as the impeachment proceedings ended, the president says, I've got to have a success story. I've got to get back on the front page with something other than Monica Lewinsky. And so he said, 
I know how to do that. What I've always done. The president, our president is such a great leader. Look, the whole world sees him this way. He solves problems of biblical proportions. That is a quote from the White House. And he's going to solve the problem of the entire Middle East. He's going to get these two leaders together, the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael, and he's going to solve this problem for the world. So Arafat's insisting on another interim agreement. So now we have the Y River Accord. And so they came to Y River. How did they really get these two parties that wouldn't even stand each other for the last several months? How did he get them to come? Well, he told Benjamin Netanyahu, if you'll come... I'll give you Jonathan Pollard back, the Israeli spy who's incarcerated in the United States. And he told Yasser Arafat, I'll get you $3 billion. That's enough to get the two to come together. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. Arafat got the $3 billion and Netanyahu went home empty-handed. And there was a dispute over, was it 13% of the land, 40.1% of the land, or 90% of the land, or 40.1% of, of 90%, or 13% of 40%, or what? It got, because there was no real agreement on anything. And it died. This agreement died immediately upon landing back in Israel. It did not work because it was all a sham. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. We pray you're blessed by our new channel. As always, hit the like button, share the program, and subscribe. And don't forget to comment or let us know how the teaching has touched you. Till we meet again, peace. Talk radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. And now, from the Solace Radio News Center. Can a presidential administration speed up God's prophetic calendar? We'll talk about that this hour. See, here's the key, once again, Genesis to Revelation. You can't take out prophecy, because if you do, you don't understand the biblical significance of the days we live in. Welcome to Understanding the Times Radio with Jan Markell, Radio for the Remnant, brought to you by Olive Tree Ministries. Today, Jan spends the hour with Bill Koenig, a news journalist who has covered three White House administrations over 20 years. Presidential actions really do have consequences, and that has transpired in all administrations and particularly when they hold to godless principles. Also joining Jan is Pastor Mark Henry, co-host of our bi-monthly Understanding the Times conferences in Minneapolis. Bill, Mark, and Jan also consider some of the current financial trends that are changing the way you live. Now here is today's programming. When I see these events happen over and over again, when I saw them happen for Bush, Clinton, and Bush, and Obama, and now Trump. I go, this just continues to confirm over and over again that you touch that land, let me put it this way, the greater the pressure on Israel to divide their covenant land, the greater the corresponding catastrophe in America. And Gary, I've even seen hurricanes, Hurricane Earl in 2010, go back to the ocean when Clinton and Obama said, we will not pressure Israel to make peace with the Palestinians or vice versa. It was a Category 5, became a 2, and went back to the ocean. Or when President George Bush was with Ariel Sharon at the UN in September 2005 when he said, we will not pressure Israel to do what they don't want to do. Wow. Ophelia that was about to hit the Outer Banks, North Carolina, 
dissipated and went back to the ocean. Hmm. That's why I say the greater the pressure in Israel, the greater the corresponding catastrophe. When I see Israel's land being the focus of the leaders of the nations, you can feel this collective fury and see this atmospheric reaction. It's a mystery, but at the same time you see this, it's like the collective fury or the fire, the wrath of the God of Israel. So that's my land. I do not intend for the Judea, Samaria, the biblical heartland of Israel, or the city of Jerusalem to be an Arab state. Welcome to the program. I'm so glad you can join me for the hour. I'm spending the hour with the familiar voice of Bill Koenig, whom many of you know from many sources, actually. His web outreach will give that info, his books, my conferences as a guest on this radio program. I began working with Bill in 2002. He's been at six of my conferences here in the Twin City area and will be with us next at our spring Understanding the Times here in the Minneapolis area. And we will live stream this to the world. We'll say more about that later. These are our bi-monthly meetings in conjunction with Pastor Mark Henry here in suburban Minneapolis. Pastor Mark Henry also in studio with me. Gentlemen, welcome both to the program. Thank you, Mark, for coming in. Glad to be with you, Jan. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jan. Bill, you have been reporting on things in Washington for over 20 years. You were a White House correspondent there for years. You continue to be doing electronic newsletters and speaking about the situation in our nation's capital. And my observation is, certainly in recent years and even decades, those in power care about only that power and financial gain. Tell me how things have changed, and I mean kind of in a paragraph or two, how things have changed over the time that you have been observing and writing about these things. Starting in 2001, being at the White House in the beginning of George W. Bush's term, I was so surprised at the level of vitriol and hatred of the leftist media, which was the majority of the people in that press room, towards Republicans, towards conservatives. Ronald Reagan had a lot of challenges with the media. George Herbert Walker Bush did. And then to watch it on a daily basis, they were constantly after Bush. At that time, we were involved in Iraqi freedom toward the end of 2001. And it just continued like that. After 9-11 and then the Iraqi war, and then up to Katrina. He was always being questioned, and the whole mindset was, we don't like conservatives. And then Obama came into office. The media became more and more, obviously, they could do whatever they wanted to do there with Obama because he was their guy. He was a leftist. He was the guy that was in favor of same-sex marriage. He was the guy that posted on the day that he was inaugurated the LGBT agenda. He was the guy that spoke of racism in America. He was the perfect guy. Majority of the White House media, this was their guy. And then Trump came on and Trump took him on. They didn't like that. Sarah Huckabee Sanders and other White House press secretaries had their hands full. But I think also, Jan, you and I have talked about this before. The level of influence of Twitter and the social networks, Facebook, TikTok, have had a dramatic impact on the animosity, the vitriol, and the dislike of conservatives. And they use those tools, the Democratic Party and their powers to be, use those social networks to intimidate almost anybody that opposes their way of thinking. So you have been chronicling between your website, your books, your speaking engagements, etc., how prophetic events have unfolded, certainly since your time there, which obviously is now over 20 years. How do you see the Biden administration furthering God's prophetic calendar? Number one, getting out of Afghanistan the way we did was a disaster. And leaving that Bagram Air Force Base to a future 
Chinese base. We had 50 or $60 billion in equipment at that base. The embarrassment of the way that we left. I remember when Obama was in office, the allies didn't trust him and the enemies didn't fear him. What we're seeing in the Middle East is a continuation of the Obama Middle East plan, favorability toward Iran, at times coming across weak, trying to force the Saudis to produce more oil, which is a joke when we have a phenomenal amount of oil and gas in the United States. So I think just his posturing, the empowering of Iran, Obama did, attempting to do that again, outside the fact that he and his administration are not the type to do anything with Secretary Austin, General Milley, and others. They're worried more about the woke and LGBT and those kind of things. And also, I'll make this a quick note. I think the situation with the United States and NATO against Russia and the Ukraine has brought Iran and Russia closer together than Mm -hmm. ever before. Also, an isolation of Israel by both Russia and the Ukraine. Ukraine wants help. Russia doesn't. And then also the situation with Taiwan, the role there, and also the compromise of the Bidens with the Chinese. So these are final day markers that are being accelerated by the Biden administration. Yeah, and Jan, you know, as I think about that question, how is this tying into prophecy? Back in the 80s when I trusted Christ as my Savior, I'm reading through the scriptures, and I didn't find America as the Mm. world's superpower. We find this revised Roman Empire, we find the Antichrist during the time of the tribulation, and all of this unfolding, of course, after the rapture of the church. And so I remember asking people, it's like, well, if America is not the superpower, I mean, how does this take place? And it was incomprehensible Mm. how America could be removed. And I remember even, I was in high school, I said, that's impossible. The American dollar, the American economy is too strong. There's no way these other countries could lead the world. Here we are seeing the collapse of the American economy, American leadership, literally on every front, we are being reduced to a middle power and mocked on every side. And we're seeing this unfold right before our eyes. So is President Biden involved in this? Absolutely. Whether he knows it or not, and I'm a patriot, I'm for America. America is a land of people and an idea that all men are created by God and equal. Those are under attack, but this is part of the unfolding of the last days, and we're seeing it right before our eyes. It really is. So, Bill, about a week ago, Joe Biden actually stated that he is going to run for president in 2024. Sorry, that does seem unthinkable. Do you have any idea, and you and I have talked privately about this, and I know you feel that he may be nominated, but it's not going to go very far. I think you even feel that Gavin Newsom will be stuck in there as a candidate. Just give me your thoughts on that. I think a lot of people, including myself, are surprised that Biden has got through two and a half years. Yeah, exactly. He's obviously diminishing cognitively, and some of the gaffes he does on a weekly mm-hmm. basis have been very problematic. I know some of the key people that have been in his administration, for the most part, whether Obama's outside administration, Susan Rice, Ron Klain, and others have been calling a lot of the shots. So one other quick note here, as far as Biden's prophetic final day role, is what you covered so well with a lot of your guests, the World Economic Forum, the digital currency, the digital passports, the program you just had with Michelle about the World Health Organization, trying to get the United States part of or being obligated to the World Health Organization. So right now he's serving a purpose for the globalists, the guys that want to be in complete control of everything. So I think with a long answer to your question, Jan, I don't see how he's going to make it physically and mentally. And I think that we're going to continue to see it diminish. I think at this point, Gavin Newsom's probably Mm. best known guy within the Democratic Party. And very likely he could be a formidable candidate unless somebody comes up, a governor, somebody like that. 
I think we have a lot of surprises ahead of us between now and 2024. Mark Henry, I don't think we've lived at a time when the prophetic events that have been referred to here, and there have been half a dozen of them, quite frankly, there are probably dozens and dozens, have been unfolding at the rapid pace that we see now. No, and it's interesting, you know, when you read Daniel chapter 9, and it talks there, Daniel, seal up the things that he's talking about. And he says, but they're going to be revealed. They're going to be understood when two things happen, when people travel to and fro throughout Mm -hmm. the whole earth. And then secondly, knowledge increases. And you think about those two things in light of human history. My grandmother used to go to church in a buggy. My great-grandmother, she raised me. And she would talk about they'd have to get the horses and they'd have to hook up Mm. the buggy. So if you go back through human history, all through human history, as fast as a horse could go, that's pretty much, that was the speed of man. But now, and you think about knowledge increasing, AI technology, the compounding of that. And so we're seeing these things happen at a very rapid pace. We shouldn't be surprised. It should move everyone's heart to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and seek him these days. If you just joined me, you're listening to Understanding the Times Radio. I'm Jan Markell. Have in the studio with me Pastor Mark Henry, Revived Church, Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. He co-hosts the bi-monthly Understanding the Times events here in the Twin Cities, and you can always watch them live or post-program, either markhenryministries.com to watch it live. Bill will be with us on Thursday, May 11th, 7 to 9 p.m. Central Time, always Central Time. Doors open at the church at 6 p.m., and that's Revived Church 7849 West Broadway, Brooklyn Park. Plenty of seating, but you might want to get it on your calendar quickly because it's coming up here. You can also use the Mark Henry Ministries app, Olive Tree Ministries app, and view the events post-program, olivetreeviews.org, markhenryministries.com. And by the way, Michelle Bachman will be a part of the program that evening as well, participating in the panel discussion and the Q&A. So Bill Koenig and Michelle Bachman. Bill, I want to play a soundbite. It's of you. And I think the thing that has made an impression on so many people over the 20 to 30 years that you've been speaking out as you have has been how you have documented so carefully, not just a dozen events, but hundreds, the consequences that happen to America when we start putting pressure on God's land. I'm going to play a real short clip here. It is you talking about this, and you go back to 1991 and George Herbert Walker Bush. Genesis fifteen eighteen. God spoke of the boundaries of his covenant land, the Abrahamic covenant. It's Genesis fifteen eighteen. It goes from the Euphrates River to the great river in Egypt. Israel's never fully occupied that land, but I can tell you that is God's covenant land. He did not establish that land to be an Arab state. He did not plan for an Arab state to occupy Judea and Samaria, or a capital to be in East Jerusalem. This is God's covenant land. God blessed the Arab people with lots of land and lots of people, and they have their land. But this land is covenant land. This this is God's land. And I determined when we attempted to put pressure on Israel to divide their land, we would have enormous atmospheric reactions within the United States. Uh, Perfect storm, the first one, the perfect storm in 1991. President George Herbert Walker Bush is in Madrid, Spain, calling on Israel to give back the land that they obtained in the war of self-defense, the Six-Day War. And as he's calling on Israel to give up this land, Judea, Samaria, East Jerusalem, 30-foot waves are crashing into his home in Kennebunkport, Maine, at the very moment 
he was speaking, not a day later, a week later, a month later. And at that point, President Bush had the highest approval rating in history at 91% after the successful Desert Storm. And from that point, after the Madrid conference, it was one problem after another, one gaffe after another. He lost his campaign manager. Ross Perot was in and out of that election, only to be defeated by Bill Clinton in that upcoming election, 92. Unbelievable. And many other events. There's 126 events in eye to eye. Record-setting catastrophes. And I noticed the greater pressure we put on Israel to divide their land, the greater the corresponding catastrophe. In other words, happening at the same time. And every president that's attempted, well-meaning, hoping that Israel would live in peace, but every president went along with giving up that land for a future Arab state or a future state, there were consequences. If you'd like to actually read the book that Bill is referring to, Eye to Eye, Facing the Consequences of Dividing Israel, it is a wonderful and a fascinating book. Find that at his website, watch.org, watch as in Watchman. And the other book he's written is Revealed, Obama's Legacy. Bill, is the pattern continuing even as we speak? Absolutely, Jan. It happened in Texas during the major freeze in February of 2021. There was four things the Biden administration did in about 72 hours. And that polar vertex came and hit Texas like me. Unbelievable. The way it hit, the disruption it caused. Another major event happened when he had Prime Minister Bennett in the White House. He was putting pressure on him to go forward with the peace process. We had another record-setting weather-related event happen at the very moment that he was in the White House with Prime Minister Bennett from Israel. And then last summer... Ian, that was a massive, going to be the second or third biggest event in U.S. history that was taking place as Biden's at the U.N. calling for Israel to go forward and take the peace processes serious. They had forced Lapid from the interim prime minister of the U.N. to talk about his favorability of starting a peace conference. Ian came ashore shortly thereafter. That was an incredibly costly event. You see these events, and it's hard sometimes, especially for the people that live through these hardships. But I've documented over and over again, 126 events in eye to eye, plus we've added another 14 that took place during President Trump's time in office, as well as four or five that have happened since Biden took office. And what's interesting now, we've had tornado outbreaks recently. From my history, the major hurricanes happened during the Bush and Trump terms and major record-setting tornadoes took place during Obama's time in office and now Biden's time in office. Mark Henry, from your position as a pastor, do you feel that the sheep, I'm not referring necessarily to everyone in your congregation, but in general within the corporate church, even understand some of the concepts we're talking about here? No, and it's really sad. Genesis 12.3 says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And you read all through the Bible, Jan, every time somebody is attacking God's covenant people, the Jewish people, there's always massive consequences. Then by the time they enter into the land, there's these consequences that come. In fact, God, even in Joel 3, talking about the future when he brings all the nations of the world against Israel in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and he judges them, it talks about how they scattered Israel, and that's why he judges them and why they divided up his land. What you do to Israel really matters. We see it everywhere in the Bible. We see it over and over and over again, which shouldn't be missed. And I think there's another element, Jan, and that's this. God is no respecter of persons. Mm -hmm. 
It doesn't matter if you're president of the United States or some obscure person. It doesn't matter if you're from this party or that party. When you go against Israel, there's going to be consequences. Jan, I wish the president would stand up and say, you know, all of the Arab nations own a lot of property. Yeah. And God said from the Great River Euphrates down to the Great River of Egypt should be Israel's. That's right. So let's talk about a peace plan where you guys give up some property and give them that. Mark, before we even take a midpoint break here, we need to have you talk about, and again, now I'm back to referring to what's coming up on May 11th, at your church here in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, northwest suburb of Minneapolis, the pastor's huddle. What is it? Why are you even pursuing a pastor's huddle? Jen, one of the things you and I have often talked about is how we need to strengthen the church and help people understand the great truths and realities that God has a plan for Israel. He has a plan for ethnic Israel. He's got a plan for the church. And at the end of the time of the Gentiles, which we're currently living in, there's going to be this rapture, and God's wrath is going to fall upon the world, and is going to bring Israel to a place of repentance, and we're going to see this great revival. All of Israel will be saved at the end of the tribulation period. We need to be sharing these things, and so just as you and I were talking, I was so blessed. As you and I just started brainstorming and thinking about how we can strengthen pastors along these lines. So we started the pastor's huddle. The first one's going to be this May. It's going to be three days. Pastors come in. We've got a good friend of mine, Dr. Michael Powell. He's a longtime servant of the Lord, graduated Dallas Seminary from the old days, from Dr. Pentecost and Ryrie and Wolverd generation. That's who he was trained under. He's just a great servant of God. He's helped me understand the scriptures. We're going to be talking about a dispensational hermeneutic as it applies to Daniel and Revelation, and that's what pastors need to understand. That's May 10th, 11th, 12th coming up. It's in conjunction with our meeting here with Bill Koenig. And I think it may be getting close to almost being filled up, but we're looking towards October as well. Yeah, so we're going to have a number of these. This first one is in May, and then the next one is in October. And I want to encourage you pastors, listen, you need to spend time with really godly men who have pastored a long time, who have studied theology. We want to look at the complexities because, quite honestly, most pastors are being trained from a preterist perspective, Mm -hmm. from a replacement theology perspective, and... Guys, we need to spend some time with some really godly men, sort these things out, and, and preach the scriptures in their entirety. Bill Koenig, one of your burdens, and mine, and for that matter, Mark's as well, is the fact that there are at least 100 million, let's keep it to America, 100 million Americans attending replacement theology churches. Mark and I have talked about that on air before and at our conferences before. Let's hear it from your perspective. Why is this almost a catastrophe? Well, in 2004, the Lord put in my heart to look at all the major churches in America and add up the total. And at that time, Jan, it was 100 million American church attendees that went to replacement theology churches. It's probably somewhere in that area today, maybe a little bit less. But the bottom line here is we have a majority, about 65% of our church in America, that has no understanding of the biblical significance of the state of Israel, no idea that God is going to judge the world. They have no idea of Christ having a millennial reign. And most important for us as evangelicals, and even thought of a rapture. They have no idea or understanding of a rapture. So these four things, most of the people that are in church in America have no idea or understanding. And again, the biblical significance of God's time clock, which is Jerusalem and the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. This is a tragedy of our lifetime, I concur, Bill, and I have ministered in some of the denominations represented in your list there. 
And there are some wonderful people in some of these churches. They have no idea what they're missing out on. They have no idea that not being able to understand God's plan for the ages using the Jewish people is sort of the center of our faith, which sadly there are too few denominations even touching on. Absolutely. But I think there's going to be an opportunity, and I think more and more are saying do you know about the apocalypse? And it's giving us opportunities, Jan, in programs like yours and the work that Mark's doing with pastors and others, like the work that we do, is pointing people to the biblical significance of the scriptures. I remember I had some Orthodox Jews that were Torah observers. They were correspondents of the White House. And anytime something would happen in Israel or the Middle East, they'd come to me and go, where's that in the Tanakh or the Old mm-hmm. Testament? I said, well, look at Daniel 9.27. Look at Zechariah 12. Look at Isaiah 63. And I'd start giving them a lesson on prophecy. Again, 27% of our Bible is Bible prophecy. It's as relevant today as it's ever been. And we are blessed generation that very likely is going to see our Lord's return to a nation called Israel, the New Jerusalem. So it's an opportunity for us to be there, to share. And at some point, I think when times get even more challenging, people are going to want to have a more biblical perspective, something that a lot of people don't even have. I wish that time would hurry up. You're right. I can't keep up with everything that's happening. Mark, and I know you refer to things from the pulpit all the time. I'm sure you have trouble keeping up and inserting everything into the messages that you give or programming like this because it's breaking so fast. Never like this in my lifetime. Hal Lindsey once said that he used to read the newspaper every day and was hoping to find something that would connect to prophecy. And if he found one, he just said he was so excited. I found something that I can use in my program or whatever. And today, it's like, Jan, which one do we pick from? Or you take a newspaper, fold it up, and throw a dart, and you got three of them. Bill, let me hit one more topic before I take my midpoint break here. But we have a former U.S. president under fire. They're trying to indict Donald Trump, although they never seem to arrest or indict anyone on the left for similar concerns. Where do you see this going? Jan, when you think about it, look what Trump has been under the attack he's been under since the day that he declared his desire to be the nominee yeah. of the Republican Party in 2015. It's unbelievable what he has been through. And at times that we talk, he doesn't help himself. Right, he doesn't. But for the most part, this is absolutely absurd. And the Russian hoax, the ridiculous correspondence you have with the president of the Ukraine, and the amount of money that's been spent by the Democratic Party and Congress trying to find something his nonprofits in New York, his financial records. It is unbelievable what they have put him through. And now he's going through this case. They're trying to embarrass him in New York. Alan Dershowitz and other attorneys have said, you know, there's no grounds here. This is ridiculous. And yeah, he'll probably be found guilty. Then he'll appeal it. I think the case is going to court in December. It's unbelievable. Jan, never, ever have we seen attack on an individual like President Trump. I tell you what, He accomplished a lot being under constant daily pressure. But I think in many ways, history will treat him like a Ronald Reagan. I mean, he did a lot of remarkable things. Just think what our country would be like today without the 200 judges that he was able to put on the bench. Look what happened in the Middle East. No wars, took down Soleimani, Iran, al-Baghdadi, ISIS. And he did more for Israel than all previous presidents combined. He's a threat, but I tell you what, his base is loyal, and in the polls, he is at this point likely going to be the nominee of the Republican Party again in 2024. I encourage you to sign up for Bill Koenig's weekly e-newsletter. That's Koenig's Eye View from the White House, and you can sign up for it at his website, 
watch.org, watch as in watchman, watch.org. And again, find his books posted there, Eye to Eye, Facing the Consequences of Dividing Israel, and Revealed Obama's Legacy. I have in studio with me Pastor Mark Henry. You can reach him at markhenryministries.com, markhenryministries.com. He pastors Revive Church in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, northwest suburb of Minneapolis, revivebrooklynpark.org, revivebrooklynpark.org. We carry his book, which is titled The Man Code, 12 Essentials Every Man Needs to Know. You can find it in my online bookstore, olivetreeviews.org, olivetreeviews.org. And Pastor Mark, your services at Revived Church in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, the times would be? Saturday at 4 p.m. and then Sunday morning we have a 8 and a 9.30 and 11 o'clock and the Lord's really blessing. We're really excited. Fantastic music if you like traditional music, Sunday 8 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. and your Saturday and Sunday at 11 a.m. be more contemporary, correct? That's right. We're going to come back. I've got a lot more questions and issues to talk to with Bill Koenig and Pastor Mark Henry. And we'll do that in just a moment or two, so don't go away. I'm coming right back. We hope you'll stay in touch with us online through olivetreeviews.org. That's olivetreeviews.org. You can call us Central Time at 763-559-4444. That is 763-559-4444. Write us through the mail at Olive Tree Ministries in Jan Markell, Post Office Box 1452, Maple Grove, Minnesota, 55311. That's Post Office Box 1452, Maple Grove, Minnesota, 55311. All gifts are tax deductible. In this age of uncertainty corrupted by sin and greed, where truth cannot be found, Thank you for trusting Understanding the Times Radio and Olive Tree Ministries. We are so pleased to introduce the latest book by author and teacher Amir Sarfati. The book is Has the Tribulation Begun? Avoiding Confusion and Redeeming the Time in These Last Days. The book looks at the signs of the times compared to global events today. But it also offers hope and enables us to persevere in today's temporal world. The book comes with an optional workbook for individual or group study. This is a book for such a time as this, as we watch world events line up with the Bible. Find it in our online store at olivetreeviews.org. That's olivetreeviews.org. Call us Monday through Friday, Central Standard Time, at 763-559-4444. That is 763-559-4444. Or sign up for our newsletters that offer products. That's Has the Tribulation Begun? Avoiding Confusion and Redeeming the Time in These Last Days by Israeli author Amir Sarfati. It will truly be a tool to help you better understand the times and be a watchman on the wall. Keep our eyes on the Lord, which will help us through these times, and at the same time, look with that blessed hope of Christ's return. Not sure when it's going to be. We certainly think it's going to be soon. But just remember 
God's plan for our lives, God's plan for our future, and get excited and expected of His return. We know you can't always be by a radio, so if you miss a program, visit our website, olivetreeviews.org. That's olivetreeviews.org. And then go to radio, where we feature both the audio and video version of our program. You can also catch the program at oneplace.com, on our Rumble or YouTube channel, and on his channel, Christian TV. Now, here are Jan Markell, Bill Koenig, and Pastor Mark Henry to wrap up today's programming. FDR had a very, in many ways, a problematic relationship with the Jewish people. There's a lot of Jewish Americans today, and even Jewish Israelis, that were furious at FDR for turning away Jews who wanted to leave Europe and come to the United States during the Holocaust. And as I mentioned, that letter that he had with Saudi Arabia was to appease them. The king of Saudi Arabia, King Saud, had gone back and forth with his concerns with FDR about Israel becoming a state. And then to be replaced seven days later, supernaturally, the way I look at it, replaced by a man, Harry Truman, who history says by the age of 12, he had read through the Bible twice. He had a Baptist background. His mother was a very strong believer. His State Department overwhelmingly opposed a state of Israel, a Jewish state in the middle of the Middle East. And he, through his courage and his biblical and family understanding and his close friend, Eddie Jacobson, a former business partner, a Jewish man who was very strong in the importance of Israel becoming a state, had an influence on this very key decision. And on May 14, 1948, Israel became a state fulfilling Bible prophecy. And welcome back. You're listening to Understanding the Times Radio. That was the voice of Bill Koenig, and you've heard him on this program probably a couple dozen times or at my conferences. Learn more at his website, watch.org. My in-studio guest, Pastor Mark Henry. Learn more at markhenryministries.com. Bill will be with us on Thursday, May 11th at 7 p.m. Central Time, Revive Church, Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, live streamed to the world, MarkHenryMinistries.com. You can watch it live there. Mark's app, Olive Tree Ministries app. You can find it on our website's post program. No cost, lots of seating, first come, first served. Again, that's 7849 West Broadway in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, 7 to 9 p.m. Central Time. Doors open at 6 p.m. And by the way, Michelle Bachman will be a part of the program that evening as well, participating in the panel discussion and the Q&A. So Bill Koenig and Michelle Bachman. Bill Koenig, I want to get back to discussion with you here quickly, and that would be we talked about the favor President Donald Trump showed on Israel, moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, etc. He did so many things. It'd take us about 10 minutes to list them all. You feel he made a major mistake. And I think that would be January 28th, 2020, when life as we know it changed, certainly in the Western world. Talk to me about that. President Trump was such a great friend of Israel, as previous presidents Clinton and Bush and Obama had promised to do during campaigns to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Trump did it. But on January 28, 2020, through the efforts of his son-in-law, Kushner, he introduced the Peace to Prosperity Plan at the White House. Michelle Bachman was there, myself and others, the media and past president. And 
other government officials. Netanyahu was there, people from Israel were there, and Trump gave his plan that also had a map. What was interesting is right after he presented his map that went on Twitter, we had a 7.7 earthquake shake the Miami Financial District, which was interesting about that earthquake. Usually they come in hot and then they drop to a lower size. That came in in a 7.3, and rather than drop it into the sixes, it was bumped to 7.7. I thought, oh, thank you, Lord. Literally 42 minutes after Trump's map that superimposed the map of Genesis 15.18 was presented. Also, later that afternoon, Peter Navarro, a White House advisor, was telling President Trump previously, but especially that afternoon, was telling Fauci and Azar, the health secretary, and Mulvaney, the chief of staff, we've got a huge problem. It's called coronavirus. We need to start shutting down air travel to China. They kind of laughed him off. So Navarro was furious. So the next day, January 29, the day after the peace plan, the Trump Kushner plan was introduced at the White House at Netanyahu back. Navarro said, we're going to lose a million people. It's going to cost us $3 trillion unless you do something immediately, develop a task force. I also wrote a commentary, Jan, life in America before January 28, when there was great favor on President Trump and our country, to life after January 28, when the coronavirus COVID crisis hit the United States and the world, and also hit those countries that opposed the Trump plan, but have favored their two-state plan. It is a distinctive difference in life in America, starting with January 28, 2020. And you feel this is a direct consequence because of the action that would disfavor Israel. In other words, some of the territory that does belong to Israel in the Peace to Prosperity Plan, and again in the Abraham Accords that would come up a little bit later, some of that land could be in the future sacrificed for either Palestinian lands or even a Palestinian state. Absolutely. The plan called for 70-80% to be set aside for a Palestinian state. Ambassador Friedman had told some audiences, well, we never really expected the Palestinians to fulfill their obligations. And at the Jerusalem Prayer Breakfast in Houston in February, I talked to former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. I said, Mark, there was a distinctive difference when that plan was delivered. He said, well, we never thought they would accept it anyway. I said, Mark, it doesn't matter. They continued the two-state narrative. You talk about a future Palestinian state in 70 to 80 percent of Judea and Samaria. And it talked about a future capital in East Jerusalem. So I don't care whether you guys meant it or not, life for the Trump administration changed dramatically on January 28th, led to a COVID crisis, led to vote by mail, the outcome that many of us were concerned about. Right. Your thoughts, Mark? Jan, it just shows that God is no respecter of persons Mm -hmm. again. Here, the president who had moved, and I remember going to Israel for the first time, and you'd go into Tel Aviv, and we'd see the U.S. Embassy, and our Jewish friends would always say, our guides, and they'd say, oh, if we could just move that to Jerusalem. And he does that. And, you know, he does so many wonderful things for Israel. And then he presents this two-state plan, and that's a demise, and God's no respecter of persons. Bill, where do you see things moving here ahead in the next year about the issues that we're talking about? Obviously, we have an election coming up in 2024, and that could change the face of everything. And I don't know if you have any insight on that. We already talked about that first half of the program where I know you feel that Mr. Biden is not going to be running on a second term, even though he has now officially announced that he will be running. If he did run and win end of his second term, he'd be 86 years old. That's a little bit daunting. Where do you think this is all headed? 
couple things, Jandy, as we summarize what's happening with the Biden administration in the Middle East. China's making a move. They just worked out an arrangement between Iran and Saudi Arabia to amend their differences. China's become a bigger, bigger player. Russia is also a distinctive player. The United States seems to want to bail out, just like Obama did. Biden seems to do the same. Another big concern right now, the typical support that APAC, mm-hmm. the big lobby group that supports the Jewish cause in Israel, who had great bipartisan influence, the Democrats, more and more of them, are kind of moving away from Israel and their support of Israel, which is very concerning and problematic. At the same time, the support by the Republican Party for Israel and the country of Israel is stronger than ever and continues to get stronger. Israel's going to have to make a decision on what to do with Iran. They're developing sophisticated missiles right now that will be deployed in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and also Yemen. That's a big concern. There's 150,000 rockets on Israel's northern border right now. And I think, Jen, last time I heard a couple months ago, there's 15,000 Iranian missiles now pointed at Israel from Syria and Lebanon. There's going to be a tough decision to be made. I think part of the reason Netanyahu is the prime minister in Israel is a majority, 75, 80 percent of Israel, wants him to be the prime minister at the time of conflict with Iran. He's been so eloquent over the years talking about the Iranian threat. So I think between now and the 2024 election, there's going to be some tough decisions made by our administration, but especially in Israel, on what to do with the Iranian threat. One other thing I noted in the first half hour is because of the Ukraine-Russian conflict, Iran is helping with drones and their defense and military and political relationship has improved dramatically because of the Ukraine war. We continue to watch Turkey, Erdogan, Iran, and Russia as they move toward their Ezekiel 37-38 position in the Gog-Magog conflict. Bill, what do you see as the red line for Israel acting? I'm shocked that they've waited this long. Is it the current division within the state? I mean, help me figure that out. 2016, according to previous U.S. ambassadors from Iraq and Syria, Jeffers and Crocker, they were concerned that Israel was very close to striking because at that time there were Syrian Iranians and Russians just above the Golan Heights inside of Syria. So it was very close to something happening that summer. Then everything calmed down a bit and then moved into the 2016 election. The problem in 2016, Netanyahu could not get the support from his defense industry, his defense minister, and then Gantz and others and previous defense ministers have opposed a unilateral preemptive strike by Israel on Iran. So I don't quite know where it is right now. I know there was a plan in 2012 that Netanyahu had, that Obama said, hey, don't do it. It was pretty decisive. Hydrogen bombs, nuclear bombs, EMP, etc. So I'm throwing a lot of content in there that Israel has had a plan. The good news is now I think they have 30 or 35 stealth bombers that have been provided by the United States, which helps them dramatically. Long answer to your question, Mark, but I know we're getting much, much closer, and Iran just seems bent on, determined to attempt to wipe out this Jewish state. They will be very unsuccessful. We do know that. He that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. You are listening to Understanding the Times Radio, Jan Markell. Have in studio Pastor Mark Henry from Revived Church, Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, where we hold our bi-monthly Understanding the Times prophecy and current event happenings. Lots of people have been watching online. We appreciate that. I'm sure way over a million at this point. I'm just transitioning for a moment. I got an email. I'm just going to read two lines of the email because I kind of like to talk about 
the financial situation for at least a minute or two here. I'm keeping this person anonymous. She says, my question is, with all the talk about digital money and digital passport, are we as Christians to be okay with utilizing digital money, digital passport? Isn't it the beginning of the beast system? Are we to, in other words, tap into it and just trust God or forego taking a part of this new money digital system? Let me just comment here. We won't have any option. If we're still here when this is implemented, we have no option but to tap into this because cash will be gone. And then, Bill, you were telling me a little bit about how the new marker will be QR codes. We talked about that for a short time. Everything will be totally digital. Let me play just a real short clip here of a discussion on the coming economy. Both of you gentlemen are so gifted when it comes to money issues. This is Tucker Carlson and an economist by the name of Stephanie Pompey. By the way, my concern is that Tucker's leaving of Fox, which is now some 10 days ago, is a fatal blow to Fox News. And as Bill said to me privately, we need to start boycotting Fox for some other options, Newsmax and other options out there. But this is Tucker. This would have been a few months ago. And an economist, in other words, are we heading to another crisis like 2008? I don't know that we know that answer. I think the possibility of that happening is very, very high. Stephanie Pomboy is an economist. She founded Macro Mavens, where she is the CEO. She joins us tonight. Stephanie, thanks so much for coming on. So can you just give us your coolest, most attached assessment of what we're seeing? This seems like a big deal, is it? I can't believe that you're not allayed by listening to Treasury Secretary Yellen. I mean, clearly she's got the situation in hand. I also am just stunned, Tucker, that you don't believe that diversity, equity and inclusion are the root of a sound financial system. I mean, come on, where have you been for the last year, Tucker? It's time for the kids to be quiet. And like, let's get some real economists here who aren't just like repeating Atlantic articles. This is insane. It is absolutely insane. And the layers of insanity, I mean, I can't even believe the videos you showed about the the people at SVB focused on the women's ski vacations and whatnot. It's just nonsense. And you're right. What we're facing right now is really serious. I mean, we are on the brink of a 2008-style financial crisis, and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. In fact, you and I discussed this at length in our long-form interview several months ago. And at the time, the Fed hadn't even raised rates nearly as high as they have today. And I was saying, look, you don't raise rates in record fashion on an economy toting record leverage at maximum speculation and expect no consequence. I mean, this was clearly going to happen. And now we're seeing the weak links in the chain break. The areas where speculation was most rampant and most egregious are clearly coming down. And they're doing so as they seem to do in all the three-letter acronyms, just like they did in 2008. We're back to the three-letter acronyms. And there'll be a lot more of those. And frankly, I think This is the unintended consequence of the Fed's monetary policy layered with really bad fiscal policy on top of it. But essentially, they've been encouraging people to take reckless risks for years just because you had no alternative. You could get zero percent 
sitting in a T-bill or having your money in the bank, or you could run out and you could speculate. And that's what they've done. And that's all coming back to bite them hard. And we've got some major consequences coming at us. And I think it's going to devolve very rapidly because of all the leverage that's been built up here. That's exactly right. If you treated your children like Fed has treated Wall Street, your kids would all be in rehab. And what they've done is bad, no (laughs) doubt. Mark Henry, do you feel then that we are, or we could be anyway, on the verge of another crisis like 2008? It seems like things are all lining up to me. I don't think it's hyperbole, Jan, to Mm -hmm. say that's going to be something like 2008. I don't even think it's hyperbole to say it's going to be worse. Okay. Because when you think about how the middle class is systematically being destroyed, and you think about how the 11 elements of the S&P 500, the index there, and how... Everything is being gobbled up by the government, these different industries and so forth. Think about everything being broken, everything from healthcare yes. to finance, the banking system, not being able to make anything on your money if you're on a fixed income and for so long CDs don't make any money and bonds don't make any money and so forth. And now that the flip to the other side, and I was just actually out in California with some friends and talking about the housing situation there and looking for a house actually for my son. He just went on staff out there with the church. And the realization, it's multiple families in all of these houses. The middle class is being wiped out, and I think it's going to be actually worse. Bill Koenig, your thoughts on this, please? I agree with Mark. This is a very problematic period. We have, I understand, 50% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, tremendous amount of stress. Biden and his people are so anti-American production of oil and gas that that has raised the price of crude oil to a very high rate that's helped spawn this massive inflation, which more and more people are having to go into their savings to make ends meet because of the cost of everything. As far as the digital currency, the central banks are determined and bent on putting that in place. You've covered it so well, Jan, in many of your programs. The other thing is this implementation of QR codes. I'm amazed at how fast that's happening. In Japan, it's a digital wallet. Everything is done with your iPhone or your cell phone. And I think that's where we're going right now. We're going to see the total diminish of the use of cash. And I know we're rapidly moving in that direction, but then QR codes are so convenient. I don't think by people using a digital currency or a QR code is the mark of the beast, but it's definitely going to move into that direction of the future mark, the implanted mark. To buy or sell, you have to have the mark. But this is definitely moving in that direction the electronic form of financial transactions. And then we also have cryptocurrencies, another component to this. Federal Reserve wants control over everything, and I question their policies right now again. And once again, it's going to be the big New York and Wall Street firms that are going to make a killing on these higher interest rates, like like we've seen with Chase, Citibank, and a few others here recently. So, Mark, what is the Christian to do? Obviously, we can trust the Lord, but it's just something we should be doing beyond that. Every day I'm asked, Jan, and I know you are too yeah, here at the I ministry, am. how do we handle yeah. this economic catastrophe, this tidal wave that's yeah, coming? Right. And in many ways, there's nothing we can do except prep. We need to prep our souls. We need to prep our assets as best as you possibly can. We need to think about security because as an economy is destroyed, lawlessness will increase. Right. There will be greater threats. I'm encouraging men and women, you need to be thinking about those three things. How do I prepare my soul? It starts with the Lord Jesus Christ, walk in godliness, draw near to God, never put your trust in assets or men. We're always to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Think about your assets, manage them well. There's 2,200 verses in the Bible. Those have been applied in all sorts of different economies and all sorts of different time frames, and they're always sufficient. God will give us direction. And we also need to think about security on just a personal level because it's going to be more dangerous. 
Your thoughts on this, Bill Koenig, how can the average listener, who tends to get quite overwhelmed with these kinds of topics, the financial issue, how things seem to be falling apart, at least financially speaking, your word of wisdom to some listeners right now? I think the main thing is, number one, this is an opportunity for us to get closer and closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, I think it's very important for us to be sensitive to our families and other people that are worried and concerned about the times we're living in. These are definitely peculiar times, but we're living in the times as Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, as in the days of Noah. I think we shouldn't be overwhelmed by that, even though at times it seems hard not to be, but I think no spirit of fear. That's a big concern today with Christians and people that can't process fear, worry. But I think at the same time, this is an opportunity, again, for people to have a personal relationship with Jesus like they've never, ever had before. Spend more time in the Word, listen to some good worship music, go to good churches like Mark's and others, and get fed. Fellowship amongst brothers and sisters, and keep our eyes on the Lord, which will help us through these times And at the same time, look with that blessed hope of Christ's return. Not sure when it's going to be. We certainly think it's going to be soon. But just remember, God's plan for our lives, God's plan for our future, and get excited and expectant of his return. Again, you want to sign up for Bill's e-newsletter, Koenig's Eye View from the White House. Do so at his website, watch.org. Mark, you had a comment? Jim, just thinking about what Bill said there, that concept of fear. Satan always wants us to be afraid. And over and over, Mm. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again, receive you to myself. There's the rapture there. We're anticipating that. Or in 2 Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind. God's going to use all of our listeners, all of our friends who are following Jesus in the life of their family. So you draw near to the Lord. You find God's grace, God's strength, God's peace, God's joy. In the midst of that, and it's going to have an impact on others. So seek the Lord. Thank you for that. Let me ask you one more financial-based question. What does it mean to the average listener? Should the dollar stop being the reserve currency that is in the process of happening? What might take the place of the dollar? The yuan, the ruble, what? What does it mean to the average listener? Mark? I think Chinese currency is going to be the one that ends up coming into play, unless there ends up being some sort of agreement with the Chinese, because quite honestly, the Chinese are having more and more gobbling up the control on all sides, it seems. Some sort of digital currency, a global currency, or maybe there's going to be a couple of different digital ones. But as America loses that, we're going to see skyrocketing inflation because oil is traded in the US dollar. But that is changing. That's right. And it's changing on all levels of trade as China is talking to Russia, as they're talking to Saudi Arabia, as they're down in other parts of the world. And we can look back and we can see great empires in the past who had the reserve currency of the world. For example, after the Napoleonic War, we had the British pound. And you can see what happened. There's going to be inflation. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be difficulty. But again, if you're a follower of Jesus, just remember this. These things may be out of our control. God is not surprised. He took care of Elijah during an economic collapse in their day because of sin. You can lean in on the Lord. Again, folks, we hope that you'll either attend or tune in next Thursday, May 11th, 7 p.m. Central Time, for our Spring Understanding the Times event, and that would be at Revived Church, 7849 West Broadway, Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. Pastor Mark Henry has been in studio with me to talk about that. Watch it live, markhenryministries.com. 
the Mark Henry Ministries app, Olive Tree Ministries app, Watch It Post program on my website, Mark Henry Ministries website. Bill Koenig, I'm down to a couple minutes. I want to give that time to you. Anything you'd like to summarize, please go ahead. Well, thanks, Jan. Great being with you and Mark today. I've talked to quite a few friends here in the last couple of weeks, and we all are just kind of what we just touched on, somewhat surprised at the times we're living. I don't think any one of us expected us to live in a day such as this. I mean, we can read prophecy, but to actually live it out, it's so unusual. But it is also an exciting time again. I'm very hopeful, expectant. I don't know when the Lord's coming back, but I have really personally felt a desire to spend much more time in the Word, much more time attending church, watching Christian TV. I just love praise and worship music. We just got to fill ourselves and feed ourselves with the joy of Jesus and the expectation of Jesus. And at the same time, keep praying for those lost ones in your family that you're so concerned about. We hear stories all the time. We've all had personal stories of people in our families that we've prayed for that have now have Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I think God gave us 27% of the Bible to tell us what's going to happen when the priority is return. And we certainly seem to be the generation that's going to see the Lord's return. So let's capture the moment for Jesus. That'll make a difference in our families, in our cities, our countries, and whoever God chooses to bring home with us we have an influence in those folks as well for his purpose and glory. Bill Canning, thank you for all you do. Pastor Mark Henry, thank you for coming in today as well. Again, I'm going to just go out of the program here with a comment or two, because no matter what is going on in this world, no matter what evil ensues, we are told that we can have peace and calm in his presence. We've tried to emphasize that this hour. No matter who sits in government, we can have assurance in knowing God sits on the throne. No matter how dim things seem to be or how dark things get in this world, we can know with certainty in our hearts that the sun, S-O-N, still shines. In John 16:33, Jesus states, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I want to thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Contact us through our website, olivetreeviews.org. That's olivetreeviews.org. Call us Central Time at 763-559-4444. That's 763-559-4444. We get our mail when you write to Olive Tree Ministries and Jan Markell, Box 1452, Maple Grove, Minnesota, 55311. That's Box 1452, Maple Grove, Minnesota, 55311. All gifts are tax deductible. Our times are in His hands, as the Bible says, so they really are not of control. God has all things in control. You are engraved in the palm of His hand. But God allows disturbing world events to happen so that all things fall into place. is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before.
every person that it is alive at the time when the Lord comes back is going to praise the Lord. We're starting a new book, a new study tonight in the book of Daniel. As I uh, have said before that we're going to uh, embark on a deep study of both books, book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And there is tremendous information, tremendous insight of future events especially. Of course, past events that happen, but especially into the future events of what's going to happen as we approach this last days of the end times. And we are, my dear friends, we are in the last days of the end times. I truly believe that. Um, I have strong convictions about it from studying the Word of God, from growing up in Israel, from being in constant communications with my family there, reading, and, of course, watching world, world events and things, how they fit into prophecy. But I want to tell you that not everything that you either hear on the news, I mean, hear on, on the television or read on the news or the Internet, not every single event fits into Bible prophecy per se that you cannot just put a check mark on every event that happens. Because there are some things that the prophets tell us that they see as they call it like high peaks or some of the valleys. And not every single one fits into a specific picture, but overall the entire prophecy fits or the events fits the prophetic pattern. Meaning that there is a rhyme and there is a reason and there is a grandiose, there is a godly plan that is being opened up. There's a godly plan that is being fulfilled in front of us, in front of our very eyes as we live our daily life. This is quite exciting. Uh, seeing, for example, countries like Russia, like old Egypt, old Persia, which is Iran, or the entire area of the Assyrian, Babylonian, Medo-Persian empires. Those are old ancient empires that are now being somewhat resurrected into the last days. It is like the clock of God, and there is a prophetic clock. As we talked about before, we are in time period. As long as we live, we're in time. Before we're born, we're outside the time. And when we depart, we're outside the time. Meaning there's two doors to eternity, entry and exit. However, right now, when we're here in this world, we are subjected to time. And during this time, there is this grand plan that is taking place in front of our eyes. And what is so exciting is that we are part of it and we see it. And of course, if our spiritual eyes 
and heart and minds is open, we see that some of us are getting, some getting um, scared. I hear that quite a bit, you know, from people. You know, it is scary. Now, you should take this word of fear out of your vocabulary. Because the Lord is not giving us a spirit of fear, the Bible says. Right? So, what it is, studying or study of the prophetic word is part of lifting up. It is as part of an encouragement that I want to get, to give to you, to impart to you, so we are not ignorant to what is happening. The world is ignorant. Those that don't have Messiah in their heart, they're ignorant. They are tossed from here to there. They are tossed by the economic uh, uh, shifting left and right. They are tossed by the situation that is happening, wars and, 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 and famines and, and all kinds of weather events. They are the one that's scared because they don't have the truth. They don't have the anchor. They don't have the cornerstone to stand on. Do you agree? So, therefore, we that are in the Lord, we have the truth. We're standing on the Word, which is the Word of God. And this is no translation. Many of us have many different translations. You know, from King James to the King that and the other. I have King David, original, right here. This is the Hebrew language, my dear friends. There's no translations here. This is the original language that it was written. And it is correct, and it is precise, and it is the truth, the absolute truth. So, what we're seeing, we're seeing some ancient nations. It is like the prophetic clock is being displayed in front of us. And it's been ticking and ticking throughout the generations. And for a while, we have not really been in the center of the prophetic clock. What I mean by that is Israel have been somewhat put aside for a while for the rest of the world to come to where it is right now. And sure enough, you know, close to, uh, 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 it's almost 65 years since uh, 64 is going to be this year for Israel to be reestablished as a nation again. And that kind of turned the prophetic clock ticking even faster. And then in 1967, we took control of Jerusalem, the entirety of the city. Meaning there's not a division in the city, there's no new Jerusalem and old Jerusalem. Now this is just one Jerusalem. And of course the crown of Jerusalem is the temple mount that's still yet to have a temple of the Lord on top of it. So what happened is that God now in the last days brings all these ancient nations. And I'm talking about from the ancient uh, Egyptians to the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians to the uh, Greeks to the Romans. Later on we see after the Romans we see other empires that come and gone like Spain like England, and now we have the biggest hegemony in the world, which is the United States of America. But you think about it, and you look at it, and all these nations have fared either good, or not so good, or terrible, in accordance with their treatment of the nation of Israel. 
It is like Israel is the yardstick for all those nations, how they fare, good or bad. And this is what God uses. I mean, this tiny little, you know, less than 15 million people around the globe, God uses Israel, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel as a nation, as a yardstick whereby he measures the world. So he brings all these people right now back into play. And you know what's so exciting? We're right in the middle of it. I don't know if you know, but Jerusalem, for example, is the center of the earth. I don't know if you know that. We talked about it before. And we will look at it later on when we cross-reference with other scriptures, for example, like uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. But in Jerusalem, very interestingly, there are the most foreign correspondents, meaning journalists of foreign countries more than any other city in the world. Did you know that? You know, there are more foreign journalists in Jerusalem than in Washington, D.C., for example. Why? Because Israel produces, first of all, from journalistic point of view, the most news in one day or in a 24-hour period than all Europe in one week. And I'm not talking about Europe, you know, especially France, you know, of last week when we had the terrible event of the uh, uh, murder and massacre of a uh, uh, Jewish family there. But what we see is why all, all those journalists are back in Israel, in Jerusalem. Because as time comes closer and closer <clears throat> to the Lord's return, all eyes are shifting and focus and attention to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is not going to only be the focus of the world, you know, it, I mean, not only of the, let me rephrase. Jerusalem is the focus of the Lord. This is where he focused. This is where Yeshua is going to come back to. <clears throat> Yeshua is coming to Jerusalem. He's not coming to Paris or London or Fresno or any other places. As important as they are, he's not coming there. He's coming to Yerushalayim. And we call it in Hebrew, Yerushalayim. And it has a great meaning to Jerusalem in Hebrew, Yerushalayim. Meaning they will see the complete peace. They will see the complete inheritance they will be in sitting there in peace but there's you know it is called the city of peace but there is a teaching that i have done uh, also already on the on the word jerusalem or jerusalem that uh, uh, you can look at it uh, in the early uh, cd's that i have it is called uh, malkitzedek king of righteousness but anyway we're looking now at the book of daniel Daniel is a central figure to the word of prophecy that it is so remarkable that not only he did not predict, but he actually proclaimed. There's a big difference between prediction and proclamation. You know who predicts something? Wall Street traders predict. Because they say, this might happen in such and such time. Now the market is down, but we predict it's going to go up. 
We predict, you know, that the real estate market in such and such time, in two years time from now, is going to start going up and the economy is going to be all well and so on and so forth. These are predictions. But the prophets proclaim. The prophet tells us exactly when and what is going to happen. Not necessarily, not necessarily that we know how to interpret the timing. Because most people want to know when. People are asking me and they say, well, Rabbi, when is this going to happen? I said, you know what? I don't know. All I know, it is that the Bible tells us that these events must take place and you can count on it. You can bet your life on it and it is going to happen. It's not if, it's when. You see, so this is the difference between prediction and proclamation. So Daniel proclaims. He proclaims the word of God through visions and dreams and and interpretations that he has been given. He had so many different encounters with angels and, and, and deities. It's just incredible, you know, what this man has received from the Lord. But we're going to look into... His life, we're going to look in the time when it all took place. We're going to look at his character. We're going to look at his integrity because it is important in these last days uh, uh, that we look at all these issues. Now, young Daniel, which by the way, his name is Daniel, Daniel, as we said, Daniel in Hebrew, Daniel, Daniel in Hebrew. That's how it is pronounced, Daniel. You know, and you hear there are two words. You heard the word dan, which is to judge, and you hear the word el. Two words that are connected together with the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which you can see in the Hebrew uh, uh, slide that I have on, is the smallest one. It is called yod. Now it becomes personal, and it says that Adonai, Daniel means Adonai is my judge. Now, This is to bring the whole message of the book of Daniel and then Revelation to us personally. It is the same thing as we talked later on. And I told you, look and listen to Malkitzedek, King of Righteousness. And it's the same thing with Yeshua. Both have the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is the Yud. And that makes it personal. Now we have a relation we have, it's not a religion, it's not just a, a simple uh, 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 ethereal belief, but this is a personal relationship. When many people say, I have personal relationship with Messiah, and so forth. Many people know it, but they cannot explain why. Now, if you know the Hebrew, here I have given it to you. Because when you add the smallest letter to the, of the Hebrew alphabet, which is the Yod, as you can see there, the smallest one, as Yeshua said, not one Yod or a, a tittle of Yod will be missed. He, that's what he meant. Because he says, you cannot miss the personal relationship with me. And this is why you have it. Because you are fortunate to come to a messianic congregation that the rabbi happened to know Hebrew as well because it happened to be (laughs) my native language and I am so thankful you know and I shared with you before I am so thankful for that because I really had nothing to do with that I would just happen to born there it just happened huh 
talk about coincidence that grandpa came to Israel in the 1930s you know grandpa and grandma and I happened to be born there the first generation after 2500 years of exile of being in the land of of the ancient uh, uh, Babylonian and and Taman and Kedar and they happened to come to Israel I happened to be born there to learn the Hebrew language and it is like the dead language as I said that the clock is ticking back the dead language that was said that is is gone is dead nobody uses it it is my native language and I'm so grateful for that now Adonai is my judge young Daniel with three of his friends are thrusted into the center stage at a very young age. But before we get to that, I want to establish something that we understand. Yeshua, the Messiah, is coming back. Class, Yeshua, the Messiah, is coming back. Hello? Little enthusiasm. If I wasn't a a Presbyterian church or something, I said, okay, I understand the lack of enthusiasm. You know, they kind of forgot about this second coming. But here we teach that on a regular basis. This is the hope. This is the blessed hope. He's coming back. He says, I am not going to leave you. I'm going there to build something for you. So if he's going to do that, he's going to come back for us. This is our hope. This is what we rest our eternal belief on. So... He's coming back, and he's coming back to do one thing. Everybody's, anybody saw City Slickers? Remember Jack Palance? He goes like this to Billy Crystal. One thing. One thing. The one thing. If you haven't seen it, it's a funny movie. The one thing. What is he going to do? The one thing that he's going to do. He's coming to judge the world. He's coming to judge nations. He's coming to judge individuals. Yes, he is. The Lord Adonai is my judge. And that's exactly what he is going to do. He's going to sit on his throne in Yerushalayim and he's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge the people. And the good news about it, and here it is, in the book of, um, of uh, Tehillim, Psalm, the book of Psalms, he writes this in, in Psalms 9 verse 6. He says, O enemy... Who is enemy? All those that don't believe in the Lord, he said that. You're either with me, look at me, or you are against me. So, O enemy, those that are against the Lord, destructions are finished forever. See, this is the good news. And I'm going to start with this. People say, oh, well, what do you want first? You know, good news, the bad news. I'm going to start with the good news. This is, this is what we hear what we're here for, to give you the good news, to give you the encouragement to know where we are in these days because the world events are enormous and they can put you down in no time. And I'm no different than you are. And we go through this grinding process that the enemy will throw at you from left to right and you can really lose it and you can actually, you know, lose hope, lose faith some people. But he says here, oh enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities, even their memories have perished. But, he says here, verse 7, Adonai, he says, but Adonai shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. 
He shall judge the world in righteousness, verse 8, and he shall administer judgment for the people in uprightness. Uprightness. Now the word in verse 8 is judge, which I underline. The word is yadin, which is the same word as Dan, as Daniel. Is he will administer righteousness and he will judge. You see, this is the same word as Daniel, but in English there's no differentiation, no difference between these two words, but in Hebrew it is. But he's going to administer righteousness and his judgment is going to be right. So what we're looking for is to be right with God. He knows we make mistakes. He knows we're human, that we stumble and fall. But he said, don't stay there. Don't stay where you have just stumbled and fall. Get up and continue. Look forward. Don't look back. Don't schlep your, you know, your, your messy stuff with you. This is what the Lord says. You know, we have a tendency that we have fallen and, and we've made a mistake and we like to dwell on the mistakes. There are people that never get out of the hole that they found themselves in. So many people and it's really heartbreaking. But let me tell you something. The only hope we have is, is it is in the righteous judgment of the Lord. As David said, let you, Lord, be my judge rather than other people, rather than my enemy. You see, you much rather fall in the hands of the Lord than the hands of the enemy. Because the Lord is merciful. The Lord is graceful. The Lord has love for you and me. And He will have grace and mercy and love for us. And He will continue because it endures forever. And He continues Psalm 96. And He says this in in verse 10. Say among the nations, Adonai reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and and all its fullness. Let's, verse 12, it says here, Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. I mean, there's a song, of course, you know, about this uh, uh, verses. I've heard it before. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before Adonai. For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. And everybody says, Amen. He's going to come and judge the world with his righteousness and with truth. Everything is written down. Everything is recorded. So it is important how we conduct our daily life. And don't be thrown from here to there. Yes, we're human. As I said, we have problems. We have encounters that sometimes we make mistakes. Yes, but this is not an unforgivable mistakes. These are the ones that we can come to the Lord, come to one another and ask for forgiveness and move on. Don't stay where you have fallen, you know, stumble and fallen. Let's move on. That's the message. Move on because the Lord is a righteous judge. The Lord is a truthful judge. And He will administer righteousness and truth through His grace and love and mercy for you and me. Hallelujah. Yes, amen. Now here's young Daniel, finds himself 
in the middle of a chaotic situation in Israel. Now, where the ten tribes of Israel has been already taken out. They have already been taken out by the Assyrian um, uh, Empire and been dispersed. Now, only what we have left is the two tribes that are in Judea. In Jerusalem, in the area of Benjamin, we have Judah and Benjamin. Yehuda and Benjamin are staying there. And now we have one king after another. Some bad ones. And then the Lord raises a righteous king, which we talked about him before by the name of Josiah. Yehoshiahu. A righteous king, a young king. Remember the... Uh, 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 what he, I mean, he has cleansed the temple. He has done remarkable things. He restored the holidays. He restored the Passover. It says that during his time, the Passover was celebrated like, like never from the time of the judges. It was an amazing celebration. A young man that has his heart is, is pinned for the Lord. You see, a young man, you know, you need to listen to it, a young, young men and, 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 and girls here. You know, God can change the world through a young man or a woman. And this is exactly what Josiah did. He changed the entire uh, uh, um, outlook of Israel uh, and, and Judah on the Lord and how, and God gave him victory after victory and he was a wonderful king. However, sometimes we have no control of how our kids going to turn out. I mean, <laughs> some of us know it very well. We don't know. We give them the best. We raise them up in the ways of the Lord. We give them the best of the best. We give everything. It is like an ever-ending investment. I don't know about you, but this is the way it is. You know, with us, it's constant. And I'm not talking about, you know, physical or, or monetary money investment, which that goes in a great way as well. You know, tell me about it, you know. I mean, we planned it so good that they were all, you know, all three of them were in college at the same time. Great planning. <laughs> and every day they need something new. And here in California, everyone has to have a car, everyone has to have a cell phone, and everyone, you know, has to have insurance and this and that and the other to no end. But not, this is not what I'm talking about. I am talking about spiritual investment. I'm talking about emotional investment. And we do that because we love Him. And this is an example, just a small example of how the Lord loves us. And here, Josiah, of course, is raising his kids in the best way. But then, you know, hey, they don't turn out the right way. I mean, there was, there was, a king, you know, by the name of uh, uh, um, Uzziah, and then, you know, he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord healed him, and he got uh, 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 15 more years, only to bring one of the worst kings of Judah, Manasseh. And he reigned for a long time. And God was so angry that he, at that time, decreed that Israel was going to be wiped off. I mean, that's it. Judah is going to go in the way of Jerusalem, I mean, uh, in the way of Israel, and there will be no more temple. And it took, you know, the Lord 2,000 years to get over it, to bring His people back, because He said He's going to do that. But you think about it, one guy really literally sealed the fate of the nation. 
And it was a tremendous judgment that brought complete destruction to the temple and desolation to the, to the, to the nation of Israel for 2,000 years. But he was not the only one. He was like the top of it. He was like the, was the, 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 uh, uh, straw that broke the camel's back. You know, it was just the topic. I mean, there was just the, the end of it. God has reached a point of said, this is it. But then, what is so interesting, that when you have a righteous king, when you have somebody that his heart is turned to the Lord, and this is the same thing here with young Daniel, and we just read just recently the whole book of Esther. Look what God has done through Esther, a young, beautiful woman that has been raised, you know, she was orphaned, was raised by her cousin that instilled godly ways into her and she saved the entire nation. Isn't that something? You see, but God introduced, even He introduces through His judgments, He introduces cycles of grace and mercy and like a time out in the continual judgment. And this is what we see here as well. You see, even though God has sealed the fate of the of, of Jerusalem when he um, uh, proclaimed judgment over Manasseh, but then came Josiah, and so there was a time out period. Is it possible that something like this can happen here in the United States of America? Of course it is. It depends on the heart of the leader. It depends on the heart of the people. You know, the nation as is will go as the leadership go. Okay, but people as, like us, we will have to respond personally to what is happening. And we are responsible personally to what we do. We're not responsible for the leadership. That's why they're in leadership. That's why they're elected. And that is why the judgment and leadership and teachers and those in leadership is by far greater than on those that are not. So let's read here. Daniel is in the time that Josiah dies, his son Jehoiakim, which was called first Eliakim, Eliakim meaning the Lord will raise or Jehoiakim the same thing. His name was changed by the king of Egypt by a pharaoh named Nico. In you, when you read it says the pharaoh Nico in Second uh, uh, Kings 24 it says that pharaoh Nico or Nico. It's if you knew some Hebrew you will know what the problem was with this Egyptian pharaoh. His name, or he had a name, and he had a title. His title, every king of Egypt, his title was Pharaoh. Meaning he's like the elevated god of the Nile. But he had a secondary title besides his name. Nico was not his name, but a secondary title that means he was crippled. Necho in Hebrew is until we use, it's the same word as we use today, Neche, or Necho, or Neche, which means someone that has problems with his limbs. Okay? When you go to Israel and you have the special sticker, or you have the special parking spot for, you know, handicapped people, it says here, in Hebrew it says Chanaya, which means parking, Necho, or Neche. So 
this Pharaoh was handicapped and he came and he captured uh, uh, Israel and he killed Josiah. And he put his son Jehoiakim or Eliakim uh, in his place, but he rebelled and then he took him aside. And then there was another one by the name of Jehoiakim and then Zedekiah. There were like five kings here in a succession time. Four, four kings actually in succession time between 597 BCE to 586 where the, eventually the temple was destroyed. I'm just giving you a little bit of historical background. And into this period when kings of Israel are not walking in the ways of God... Kings of Judah are not doing what they're supposed to do, being, being bad leaders and bad examples. God exacting his judgment over Judah again and again and again to the point that finally in 586 BCE, the temple was destroyed. The temple was burned down and the articles of the temple were taken away. Now, Daniel 1, and we start reading Daniel 1. Verse, uh, verse 1 and 2. And it says here, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiachim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And Adonai gave Jehoiachim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see? Adonai gave him into his hand. There was a divine action divine intervention because God said this is the appointed time for my judgment and this is what we're talking about judgment and now how long I'm going to ask you a question that I want you to think about it pray about it and we will discuss it in future times how long do you think God's grace and mercy will continue over this country, the United States of America. How long do you think God is going to endure all what is done against Him in this land and how long it is before He gives America into the enemy's hands? And I'm going to leave it at that. It is an awesome question, aren't they? Because this is a place we live. This is a place we love. This is a place that we raise our kids and grandkids and we want to be here. But this, things, this place unfortunately is falling apart. Not only falling apart, but is fallen and continuously falling away from the, from, uh, falling away from the Lord. And he's not going to sit there forever, just God bless America. You know, God bless America. And the question is, why would he? When America spits in his face, when America continuously, you know, takes him out and kicks him out of school, of public place, and curses him to his face, why should he? Would you? Okay. We'll continue talking about it. But here it is. Here's a prime example. God gave him into his hand. I don't know. I gave him to his hand. With some of the, of the circles of the house of Elohim, some of the articles of the house of Elohim, meaning some of the artifacts of the temple fell into the hands of the Babylonians, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his Elohim. And he brought the articles into the treasure of his Elohim. Meaning, they have their own gods. Okay? And he came in and he defiled the temple. 
but he didn't take everything. There was something about the older Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't take all the vessels. He took some of it. And he kept the king still in place. Although he replaced him, but he still kept the, the kingdom somewhat intact. He did not destroy the temple yet. But here, what happened? Then, um, as I told you before, then the king rebelled. So he came back. He came back and later on he destroyed the temple and took everything out of it. Now, now the king, verse 3, then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men in whom there were no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick in understanding, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language of and the literature of the Chaldeans. Here it is. He's taken the cream of the crop. The king sends his chief, chief of staff, pretty much, he says, go get the best kids. Those Jews, Jewish kids are smart. How many of you have heard, you know, oh yeah, Jews are smart people. When I went to China, they all want to be like us. He says, we know you guys are smart. We want to do business like you do. There was actually, you know, an executive in Japan, which there's very little Jewish people there. Some years ago, I was reading about it. He came to the chief rabbi in Tokyo and he says, I want to be circumcised. I want to become a Jew. And the rabbi say, what's up? Why do you want to become a Jew? He said, I know you guys are smart in business and I want to be successful and smart as you are. <laughs> the rabbi said, I'm sorry, I can't do that for you. Here it is, the king sends the best of them, those that are good looking. Now here it is, some of people that stereotyping the Jewish people, right? Some of those anti-Semites. Let me tell you something. We have, I would say, one of the best looking people in the world. You know that Israel, as small as it is, have brought so far six Miss Universe? Six, not one. Not two. And besides all, we have the best of all of them. She was just the gorgeous of most beautiful. She, she was, you know, miss everything was Esther. And we had a very, very handsome young man that actually became, we had two of them, but one was incredibly handsome, king of Israel. His name was David. He was actually a little redhead, the Bible says. Huh? Oh yes, yeah, small nose too. Yeah, to all those that have all these stereotypic, you know, things. This is just so anti-Semitic, you know, to the nth degree. It couldn't be further than the truth. How can you categorize people? In Israel, we have them from the whitest white, you know, from the blondish blonde with green blue eyes, to the darkest ones. And all that's in between, like myself. You know, it depends on the uh, uh, letters of degrees of how many, how long have you been baked. I've been baked a little bit longer than Lynette, so what? 
But here he wants the best looking kids. He wants those without blemish. Those that are smart. And they know they have knowledge. Even here it says in the English. You know, they have knowledge and quick understanding, the ability to serve the king. But in Hebrew it says, they have understanding of science. The word is mada, which is used until today. They have understanding of science. You know that in Israel, today, in Israel, the small country of Israel, with all the problems, we have per capita the biggest startup uh, uh, high-tech company in the world, the number one, the number one startup of high-tech company in the world. Do you know how much knowledge per capita comes out of Israel? Like no other nations. What you have in your computers, including, you know, the legendary Pentium chip, by the way, was invented in Israel. And the cell phone, by the way. It was invented here, but was greatly refined in Israel to where it is today. You know that every major high-tech company has tremendous R&D, research and development in Israel. The uh, CEO, president of Intel, came to Israel several years ago, spent 24 hours in Europe and a week in Israel. They asked him, why? He said, there's more brains in Israel, in this little country, than all Europe put together. That's his words. So the king knows what he's doing. He's taking the cream of the crop. And there are four kids now. And he wants to teach them so they will serve. Verse 5. And the king appointed for them daily provisions of the king's delicacies. And of the wine which he drank. And three years of training for them. So that the end, at the end of the time, they might serve before the king. I mean, this is not a new, this is not a, a small thing. You think about it. To go and serve before the king, three years of training, of intensive training on a daily basis. Just few kids with tutors, continuously. Remember the story of Esther, before they brought... The girls to see the kings. Remember what they did to them? Six months in oil. They soaked them for six months in oil. Think about it, ladies. Think about spa. Six months of soaking in oily and and, and spa. And another six months in perfumes. Oh man, they were the best smelling and the softest girls in the world. Think about it. Think about, you know, I, I, can want, I can imagine what's going to happen to me if I soak for six months in, in oil and then, oh man, I, I'll have my, 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 my skin like uh, my little uh, uh, grandson, you know, soft little butt. It would be so nice and smooth, you know. There's nothing softer than a little baby's butt. Let me tell you, this is so, you know, cute and smooth. And this is what happened. So here, three years of training. So they will be able to stand before the king. So, now from among those of the sons of Judah, where? There's a lot of people that are being called. A lot of people that are being chosen to a certain task, right? I don't know about you, uh, of your background, but I can tell you that in my military unit, 
I was 18 years old in 1971. You can do the math quickly. And to the military unit, we volunteered to this particular unit. So everyone volunteered, meaning we have been chosen by the leaders. But among those that were chosen, there were few of us that were just gravitated to the top. In every class, in every circumstance, in every small society, you will see those that, you know, gravitate to the top because of their gifting, of their natural ability. And not only that, it is because of their integrity. And sometimes people don't have all the gifting. I have seen people with tremendous gift that fall by the wayside. You know, and you say, oh man, such a gifted guy, such a gifted girl, and look what happened to them. And then you see those that have the tenacity to continue, and they don't give up, and they have the integrity to stay with it. And this is what I want to challenge you kids and adults. Maintain the integrity. And this is what it's all about, because we are going to be judged about our integrity. And you know what integrity is? Is what you do, Wade, when nobody sees you. That's what it is. When you're told, don't do that, and nobody sees you, ah, now I can do that. I can go get that little chocolate. I can cheat on the candy. I can go get that, you know, triple scoop of ice cream. Shh. I don't know. I'm trying to maintain my integrity there. But then he says here, there were four of them. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Also known that we're going to read here. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. And he gave Daniel the name of Belshazzar. Oi, poor Daniel. And to Hananiah, Shadrach. Oi, vey. To Mishael, Mishach. <laughs> Close. And to Azariah, totally different. Abednego. Meaning a slave of one of his god, Nego. But look at this. I don't know, those Babylonian names have no meanings, to me at least, because I don't speak Babylonian. But the Hebrew have strong meanings. Daniel. That's a strong name. I asked my mom for, you know, a time, why did you call me Amnon? Hard to pronounce in America. Oh, I get my name butchered left and right. It's just not funny anymore. I mean, it is funny. But you know, the second son of David, his name was Daniel. And I said, man, I have, I'm going to have a boy, I'm going to call him Daniel. But we didn't have a, you know, a, a, a fourth kid, but God gave us Daniel last year as a new son. So we're thankful. But think about it. She said Amnon because she said it's a strong name. It means a faithful son. I said, well, thank you, mom. And uh, little Caitlin cannot pronounce my name, and she says, Amen. She calls me Amen, because that's the root word of my name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Daniel, the Lord is my judge. Hananiah, the Lord is my grace. Hananiah, the Lord is the one that gives you grace and mercy. It's the same as Yohanan, which is the English, the Hebrew name for John 
Now when he said the Apostle John, but I tell you, his name was Yohanan, meaning the one that has been bestowed grace by God. He said, wow, that's great meaning. So this is what Hananiah means. Hananiah. And then Mishael, meaning the Lord is the one that carries my load. Or he is the one that answers my wish. Masa, Misha, Mishael. You know, he's the one that answers my wish. And then, of course, Azariah, Ezra. You know what Ezra, this is the same word, Ezer, which is, the Lord is my helper. So here, the Lord is my judge. The Lord is giving me grace. The Lord carries my load and he answers my wishes. And the Lord is my helper. And God takes these four kids with these extremely symbolic names and he puts them in the center stage. And they're just teenagers. Now, I don't think that there is any coincidence to their name. But it is very important here. So what God, uh, what they do, you know, they, as they say, Americanize them. They give them Babylonian names. What's your name? Shlomo? Shlo what? Oh, let it be Solomon. Oh, easy. We'll call you Saul. We'll call you Sal. What's your name? Yehonatan. What is this Yehonatan? What is, oh, Jonathan. Oh, okay. Hananiah. Do you know that actually that was the name of the high priest? But how about we call him Annas or Ananias? It doesn't mean anything. It is like you strip one of his, who he is. You see, when a name is given, it is part of who you are. I know that some English names have meanings and I have not studied that to the you know, highest degree because I concentrate on the Hebrew. And the Hebrew has tremendous meaning and tremendous application because it speaks to us because we read the Bible from the Hebrew scripture. And God takes these four little kids and he puts them in center stage and gives them tests. And here's the test. And he says, and, verse 8, and we're going to close very shortly here. But Daniel proposed in his heart, listen, he is the leader. Here you see immediately leadership. You don't see Hananiah or Mishael or Azariah. You see Daniel takes the lead. Sometimes you do not have to be told, do this or do this. You see the need, you see something, you see the opening, you take the lead. People said, well, Rabbi, how come you're not appointing this, that, and the other? I've done that. I don't like to appoint anybody. I like to see who does what, who sees the needs, and who steps in to fill the need. These are the leaders, and these are the ones that I'm going to call. Oh, I see him do this. Okay, now I see the enthusiasm, I see the initiative, then I can do that. And this is the biblical way to do that. Rather than to appoint somebody, you know how many times you find those in governments that don't do a thing. They don't know a thing, but they're there because they've been appointed. And they cause a lot of damage. So you take those that not appointed, those that anointed. You see, and Daniel is anointed. So Daniel proposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portions of the king's del uh, delicacies, not with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chiefs of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He made a decision. He made a decision 
And I'm going to stop now. He made, a, he made a decision that he's not going to defile himself. He's not going to compromise. He's going to keep his integrity. Risking his life. Because right now, when you go against what the king has ordered, you're dead. That's it. But a divine intervention. Here it is. There were, he took the initiative. He is the one that took the action. And then God intervenes on his behalf. Now, verse 9, Elohim had brought Daniel into the favor of, and goodwill of the chiefs of Un, chief of eunuchs. Oh, fantastic. The word that he brought him into favor, when God saw this young man's heart, he extended what we call in Hebrew, chesed. That's the word, chesed, grace. Hanan. He gave him extra measure of grace, and he found favor in the eyes of the chief of eunuchs. Same thing with Esther. Many times, and I'm going to close with this, and I'm going to tell you, because had he proposed in his heart, he's going to do like the rest of them. There were many other kids, by the way, there. They ate and drank and everything was fine. But Daniel made a decision. An executive decision that could have cost him his life, but we will see what happened to him in the future. Because what we do, on a daily basis, how we make decisions, it's either going to propel us or it's going to put us down. Listen kids, it's either the decision that you make, you're either going to go up or you're going to go down. And when you do the right thing, God intervenes. And when I go out sometimes and I need to do something, I say one thing, Lord, just grant me favor. Grant me favor. You go and you try this at home. You try this this week. When you go out and do something, just think about it. You need to do something. Okay, Lord, I just need your favor. And you will see. I'm telling you, it works. God bless you. May you find favor in the eyes of man and God. Thank you very much.